So I received an email asking us, you and me, Berto, to talk about the movie Nightcrawler. And it's a, I, I knew nothing about it. And so we decided to go see the movie Nightcrawler. And now here we are to talk about the movie and analyze it in a psychological manner. What do you say? Awesome. This is the Psychology and Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. My name is Humberto Castaneda, and I work for a local news station. I gather footage at night for them. Well, this movie, Nightcrawler, was released in late 2014. It is getting rave reviews. Out of 186 reviews online, it holds an average of 8.2 out of 10. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's already received a number of awards for directing, acting, and writing. We'll see about the Oscars because mm-hmm. those are coming up. It was directed by Dan Gilroy. This is his first directorship. He's never directed a movie before, but he's been writing movies for a long time. What did he write? Well, he wrote The Born Legacy, which is the most recent Born movie. I didn't see that one. Neither, neither have I. The movies that I've seen that he wrote were Free Jack, which is way back in 1992. Oh, I remember Free Jack. With Mick Jagger. Yeah, didn't have... And Rene Russo, by the way. Yeah. I think that's where... So he's married to Rene Russo. Oh, I didn't know that. They've been married since Free Jack, so I'm guessing they met on the Free Jack set, because that was his first movie hmm. that he wrote. He also wrote Real Steel. Did you see that? No. The one with Wolverine, and there's a robot that's like a boxer. I did not see that, no. It's a kid's movie, as far okay. as I can tell, and I saw like a part of it, and it seemed fine for what it was. But it's not really Wolverine, it's just Hugh Jackman. Yeah. So going from Free Jack, Real Steel, The Born Legacy, uh-huh. to Nightcrawler is quite a departure. Did he write it? He wrote and directed okay. it. It stars Jake Gyllenhaal, Gyllenhaal sorry, Rene Russo, Bill Paxton, and a new actor that I've never seen before, I don't think I've seen before, Riz Ahmed. I think he's English. He was a sidekick. He was the sidekick. And I read online that Gyllenhaal lost 20 pounds for this role. Yeah, that you could tell. Yeah, he looks really... He looked gaunt. Well, he doesn't look skinny. It's just his face looks... Because he's always been a thin dude. He's not... You know, he's no, but never, he, was, he had bulked up. Remember Prince of Persia and stuff? Oh, I guess He'd so, gotten yeah. buff. Here he looked like... Like very well, malnutrition. Well, his body looked normal, but his face yeah. he and his eyes were sunken in. And right. So he's really taking this role seriously. So let's talk about the movie. Spoiler, spoiler alert. We're going to talk about the entire movie. So it starts with Jake. His character's name is Lewis. So we'll refer to him as Lewis. Lewis. He's the lead character, Lewis. It starts with Lewis stealing metal fence material. He's... He's at night and he's at some like train station or shipyard or something. And he's cutting fence, chain link fence material and putting it in his car. And a security guard confronts him. And the security guard's like, hey, what are you doing? And Lewis is very calm and he doesn't seem to be rattled. It seems like he runs into this sort of thing all the time. You see him quickly glance down at the security guard's watch that he's wearing and then there's a fight and you don't see what happens. You don't know if Lewis killed the security guard or just roughed him up. But later you see him with it with the watch on. Which probably means the security guard was like, hey, you can have my watch. Right. We don't know. There's a lot of possibilities. So apparently Lewis goes around town at night stealing metal. Like he steals manhole covers, 
chain link fence material and other metal and then goes to a metal scrap yard and sells it right. for a very low price, I'm guessing, because he this Lewis is not well off. He lives in a really bad apartment. He right. has a really bad car. And so he tries to sell the metal to the guy who buys metal, and he's trying to negotiate for higher prices. Remember this? Oh, yeah. Without any reservation. He, he's just a, a very methodical negotiator. He he doesn't seem to be rattled by the conflict that's occurring between him and the guy who's buying the metal. But at the same time, it's weird because he, he also doesn't read his audience very well at all because he is talking and acting as if he is selling a car in a car dealership rather than trying to sell stolen materials late at night to some, to some sle- you know, kind of skeezy dude. <laughs> right. Yeah, it just comes across as odd, right. the way that Lewis interacts with people. Then later, he I think maybe just later that night, he's driving home, and at night, he's on the highway. This takes place in L.A., I believe. He passes by an auto crash and stops because he's curious about it. This car is on fire. He stops his car, casually gets out of his car, walks back to the auto crash, and he sees these two police officers pulling a woman out of this burning car. And there's a, a random guy that pulled over and is filming it. This is Bill Paxton's character. He's a veteran guy who takes video at night to sell to local TV stations. So he listens to the police radio. You know, they say, accident on I-5 at this exit. And then he races out there to see if he can get good footage to sell it to the radio stations. And so Lewis sees Bill Paxton doing this, and it and it's very – he's curious about it, right? And so it piques his interest because, in you know, he just got very little money for the metal that he hawked. And he sees this guy, and Bill Paxton says something like, "Yeah, I'm going to sell this footage for 300 bucks, right, to News Channel Five tonight or something." And Lewis is like, "300 bucks, right? Whoa, how do I do what you do?" <laughs> right. So then Lewis steals a bike, goes to the pawn shop, sells the sells it to the pawn shop, and gets his first video camera. And then he starts filming crashes himself. He gets his own police scanner and. Oh, and by the way, at, at the pawn shop, it's another one of those kind of weird, funny moments where he's riding around in the bike, pretending like it's his bike and that he used it to win some big race. And then he's selling it to this guy, again, as if he's in, as if he's dealing in a totally different environment. But the guy's clearly like, whatever, dude, just here's two bucks. You know, like, <laughs> right. Again, Lewis is coming across as odd and doesn't really pick up on social cues. But he's and- very well read on some level, you know. Yeah. Like- Right. And he's lying through his teeth. He's saying, I won the Tour de France or something twice. I mean, not that particular bike race, but some other lesser known bike race. I won that race twice on this bike. This is a very expensive bike and he's trying to negotiate. It's almost like he knows that people know he's lying. I don't know because it, it, it's, <laughs> it seems strange the way he, the way he talks to people. Uh, but it certainly doesn't bother him. He's not sweating. He's not hesitating. Right. It's just matter of fact. Right. I'm just going to say this. It almost seems like he comes up with it off the top of his head. Lying is very easy for him, and stealing is very easy for yes. him. Yes. Okay. But he's also like 
it's he's also memorized things like because he you know he alludes to I read this book I read this thing online I did this and so he's like reciting pieces of that right like right. I I'm told that I have to look you in the eye you know these kind of like things you might read in a self help book or in a how to sell or whatever right. and he's going by the book very much so right he mentions that he learned a lot of about everything on the internet, particularly how to run a business or how to be an entrepreneur. And, you know, he even says something like, you can learn everything on the internet if you know where to look. And a lot of what he learns is how to do things and including how to interact with people. Right. So we already have this clue that the character knows he has difficulty interacting with people. And the character's probably like around 30, you know, 35 or something. So he goes around town filming car crashes and he arrives at this one car crash and there's this guy that is not doing well the paramedics are working on him and it looks like he's going to die and there's a he's bloody and it's not looking good for him and another film guy is there but he's standing back a little bit you know he he can't really get in the business of the medics you know but lewis gets right up in there he just walks right up sticks the camera right up to the to the victim of the car crash and is and you know then the paramedics are like what are you doing get out of our face and and lewis is like what i'm just i this is my job i film this right again doesn't understand social mores doesn't have any fear i mean i know people that are afraid to film regular things like you know one of the things that i've often wondered about is you know back in the day like in the 80s video cameras were rare and huge and difficult to deal with now literally everyone has a video camera in their in, right. the, in their pocket and i would have thought that that would actually increase exponentially the amount of videos that are out there and i suppose it is mathematically exponentially increased but videos are very rare for people to take today right yeah, i mean you, to, you take compared videos. to your expectation i would have thought everyone because videos are it's really not it's not rare compared to before right but it's rare compared to how much they're especially especially i think as you start narrowing it down to like uh to big incidents like you know because you'll you'll have the one yeah like you'll have these big riots or whatever and there's like the one guy filming yeah you would have expected like hundreds of footage from right. that incident. Well, not only that, but when people have major events in their life, like a wedding, for instance, right. a video camera is an afterthought, I have found. A lot of people don't videotape. I mean, I'm not saying you have to videotape the entire thing. Right. It's just get a little, you know, even if it's just one minute of footage from, from the right. ceremony, that's an important important thing i would think i mean people know the value of pictures nowadays way more than they ever did before but for whatever reason video so so right people and i think part of the reason is because taking pictures is less invasive for people and therefore people don't feel as bad about taking a picture whereas i think people feel bad about taking video it's also easier to curate the because you know you take like 10 pictures and even if nine of them are bad you'll just post the one that's good right right but with videos it's for most people they don't get to edit they don't know how to edit they don't care to do it right. so even if they did film you're not going to see that video but <laughs> it's another, I mean, I understand that part of it because that's actually a technical expertise that you need to have. But don't you think they would want the video for themselves? You would think so. You would think they would want just, I mean, a video, if a, if a picture, if a picture is worth a thousand words, right. a video is worth a million words. And, and I just, I've always just found it funny as a person that takes a lot of video myself I, and you do too. But I do it, um, 
I do it very aware that I will have very limited time later to come back to it. So if I if I take a video, I try within that day to like crop and post it. And I think maybe there's a good number of people that just fill their phone up with stuff and thinking they'll get to it and right. they just never get to it. Well, that's another thing that boggles me. It's like, get the stuff off the phone. Your phone yeah. has very little capacity yeah. compared to your desktop or right. your laptop. Like just anyway. Yeah. I mean, there are people that, oh, I lost my phone. All my pictures. All my pictures and videos. Are like for five years have been on. I'm like, what? What do you, what? Oh God, that would destroy me. I know. And I've, well, it's totally happened to people, but anyway. Uh, so, so my point is, is that people in general have a, you know, they're sort of skittish about video, you know, being on video or taking video, whereas Lewis just gets right up in there, doesn't seem to understand. Well, and, it, and it's rude. Like if you did it, like, let's say you're at a restaurant and you grab your camera and you go up to people and you start filming them. They're going to be like, dude, stop right now. Right. And uh, this guy doesn't care. Right. He doesn't care. He doesn't, or he doesn't care or he doesn't know. So that's, that's kind of a question in this film is, does Lewis know he's bothering people or does he not know? Does he know and right, not care right. or does he not know and maybe he cares if he would know? Because later in the movie, his sidekick says to him, you don't understand people or something. What yeah. He and he says, he says, oh, I understand people. I just don't like people. Yeah. He said, no, he, well, he's, he asks a question. He says, what if it's not that I don't understand people, but that I don't like them? Right. So the writer did something clever in that because it still leaves it as a question for us. It's like, well... That's the question, and it's still an, an um, a kind of a an unreliable, biased observer saying that because he might think he understands people, right? But in reality, I get the sense you that don't understand what you don't understand. Yeah, yeah, and it's kind of a mix either way because clearly he knows how to manipulate people really well, right? Right. Well, in a particular way, and this in is some a, ways, this yeah. is another question for me that I had for the character is that what was he like before this? I mean, yeah. at the beginning of the movie, he's got a bad car, a really bad apartment. Right. He's got no money. He's he's working all night to negotiate over pennies. Right. It, later that night. That's another clever thing about the film is you have no idea where this guy comes from. They never reveal his family or yeah, anything. Totally. He just enters the film in this weird spot. Drifter. Yeah. I got this sense that it was probably, and this is just my interpretation, it was like that kind of person that had kind of a family, sort of broken up home or whatever. He stumbled out of high school and then got some menial jobs and got fired, then got fired again, and then just started scrapping around for for money yeah and that was the sense i got but then now he finally is at a point where he's his his psychology is now he's going to put it to use in a some would call it a bad way but right that seems likely because he never refers to i used to have it all and he seems very accustomed to not having it That's all right. yeah okay so let's look at his personality what, what what can we say about his personality that we haven't mentioned already <clears throat> or let's review or his personality yeah. in general I, i'd say one thing is uh and you know i'm no clinician or whatever but i got a sense of antisocial behavior in the sense you that mean asocial yeah, sure. Asocial. Like, he just doesn't care. If I mean, he there's wants a, there's something... A, there's a, we're going to get into that later, but there's a yeah. big distinction between oh, okay. asocial. You know, okay. asocial is someone who doesn't socialize, oh. either because they're, they're afraid or they just don't prefer it. The other antisocial is the opposite of pro-social. Pro-social things are giving to charity, helping the old woman cross the street smiling and making other people feel good. Antisocial is punching someone in the face, yeah. stealing from them. Yeah. I, I meant antisocial. Okay. I meant antisocial because he w sees something, he wants it, he takes it, 
And if that means he has to maim or kill or punch, whatever, it doesn't matter. And if he needs to, oh, hey, I want to make some money making films. Cool. I'll just go put this camera in this dying man's face. I don't care. Hey, my buddy, my my cohort wants more money. I don't want to give more money. I'll just kill him. Well, you know? Right, right. So there's only two moments where you really see that he doesn't seem to care about other human beings in a really definitive way. And that's in the first scene where he... It very at the very least assaults this security guard and at the most kills him and, and just because he right. wants to get a few cents from this chain link fence and t- and take his take his watch and then the other one was when Bill Paxton and him had this rivalry because as Lewis starts to rise in the ranks of notoriety and money and prestige regarding taking videos around town that's why it's called nightcrawler because that's what they call these people i think they they crawl the night for you know different fantastical video to sell to the news stations when bill paxton and him start to have this rivalry lewis sabotages his car in a way that the brakes or something the, the brakes and then he crashes and then he's physically injured we don't know eventually his outcome but he seems done yeah he's not gonna nightcrawl anymore yeah. anyway And so in those two instances, you see that he has no remorse or caring about harming someone who gets in his way. Well, And then you see it again with with his partner. You know, he he basically literally sets his partner up to to die. Because he wants excellent footage to give to the... And because he's trying to muscle in and blah, blah. And then the other thing is, uh, I actually would also contend that when he's filming his subjects... He shows no empathy. Yeah. To the extent that, remember that guy that was still alive? Right. He cuts that out. Right. And and he did, obviously didn't help any of them or try or care. Right. And you see his facial expressions. He's ex- he's excited about getting the right footage. Anyone else, and they show this with other people like his partner, his, he, you know, his employee. Yeah. His employee reacts to things the way we would react. Yeah. He's freaked out by things. There's a crash and there's gore and yeah. it's shocking and it's, it's traumatic to see. Lewis doesn't affect him at all. He sees gore and car wrecks and horrible things and it, it's like he it's like he's filming a flower or, yeah. or a cat or something that's right he's he, he just like okay i mean he even takes a body and, yeah. and, moves, and it moves it because he needs a better shot because right. the you know the, the the dead body isn't in the right spot and before the cops get there he like moves it to to get a better shot so yeah clearly he yeah. lacks empathy is callous he takes risks and he's attracted to danger extreme yeah yeah, like who, when someone sees a car on fire on the side of the who stops and gets out of the car and walks up to the car on fire? <laughs> I mean, not that many people. Yeah. He lies very easily. He's very formal. He's like extreme. He's, he's an odd duck in among right. all these seemingly normal people. And, and, and then he feels he can um, essentially not blackmail blackmail is not the word uh yeah blackmail uh, extort well, extort yeah he can extort sexual favors out of his boss Rene Russo you know Rene Russo because he's like oh okay she wants something i can provide so i will ask and she's a female i will ask for sex right Rene <laughs> Russo is a producer at the at the news station and is also to some extent might be antisocial or psychopathic herself Again, because at the news station, when Lewis brings in this really difficult footage, Rene Russo's character is is attracted to it because yeah. she knows it's going to make ratings and, and give her job more stability. Yeah, yeah, she also shows 
no human empathy right. in that sense. Whereas other people in the newsroom are reacting the way we would, which is with horror when, right. they, when they see this footage. Rene Russo sees dollar signs. Everyone else sees trauma right. and human suffering. And she's so attracted to it that even though she faints, uh, or no, she was initially more like more than horrified. She was uh, uh, how do you call it? offended that he would say, you know, basically propose, proposition her in that way. Right. But it's, eventually she does it. Right. <laughs> Right. So because she needs this footage from him in order to keep her job, because her bosses want her to have ratings, right. he know, Lewis knows this and, sa- and Lewis wants sex with her okay. and says that basically and says, look, if you want exclusive rights to my videos, then we're going to have to enter into a sexual relationship. And it's this really excellent scene, I thought. Right. And, and, and he, pr- he puts it so weird, right? He's like, you know, there's a way in which I can get lonely and there's a different way to be where I wouldn't have to be lonely or whatever. Yeah, you know, yeah. something like that. And it's like, what? Yeah, yeah. So he's also what we call glib or super, superficially charming, right? When, mm-hmm. he, when he wants to, he can really pour on the charm. Right. Not always, but but you see it sort of click on with like when he's trying to impress the other people in the newsroom. He's very charming to them. Hey, how's it going? Right. I read your piece on blah blah blah. That was really smart of you. And then the guy's like, "Oh, thanks." And you know, I was thinking about that. What what I what I thought was interesting is that's his operating mode. That it just, you know, in most of the context he was operating in prior to that time in his life, it didn't work because these people he interacted with, they're, they don't put up with that bullshit. They're like, what do you, get the fuck out of here, right? Yeah, like the guy he's negotiating yeah. prices with for the metal. Yeah. That didn't work with him. Yeah. But, but then once he entered into an environment that was these artificial office environments, which are by nature artificial, right? Because you have to be like, when, whenever you're in a, in a modern office environment, you, you know, you have to be overly polite and you have to like f- feign interest in people, whether you are or not. And right. so well, he su- fits right in. <laughs> right. Success in an office environment uh-huh. is somewhat determined by how charming you are. That's right. Whereas in the metal business, at least as they were portraying it in this film, it's not so much. Right. (laughs) Uh, Other personality traits that we see is that he's fearless. He he just walks right into the newsroom, even though he he doesn't have access. And people are like, what is this guy doing here? But he just acts like he's supposed to be there. Yep. And he asks for like... How much do you want? Fifty thousand. <laughs> it's like, oh. yeah, and yeah. Again, he he negotiates <laughs> very well. Like for me, when I go to countries where you're supposed to barter, barter I'm terrible. <laughs> they they throw out a a number, you know, you know, like uh, fifty pesos or whatever, and I'm like, okay, I'll give you sixty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, he, he wants approval. Lewis really wants approval. It seems he wants Nina to like him. That's Rene Russo's character. He wants to be on TV. He wants people to recognize him. And this was another question that I had was, do you think he wanted to be on TV and wanted Rene Russo to like him because he actually wanted to be liked? Or was it just an entrepreneurial strategy to get her to like him and to get the TV people to like him. That's a good question because I I got the sense while I was watching it that he really had a desire f- for acceptance. But he also, based on how reckless he got with those relationships, 
like specifically her relationship, it almost seemed like no, the the maybe the entrepreneurship part is what trumps it all. Because you know, yeah, he you got that sense of like, oh, you know, I'm gonna do great things for you. I'm gonna really show you. And in those moments, I guess I gave I might have fallen for the BS too. You know, like oh, you know, although I know how horrible he is as a person in that instance i'm thinking oh you show her that you can do it right but the fact is like then he turns around he's like okay well great now that you need this uh now i need more money and i need sex and and then so he does he really care about the acceptance right it's (laughs) difficult to know what really motivated him yeah that that's part of the i think the the writing they did a good job in that way because you get a sense for one and a sense for the other right but they didn't try to obscure it in a way that other writers will do they they really exposed you to the lewis character and at the same time sort of rode this line between right. him being likable and him not being likable and you get that sense at the end that it wasn't his end goal wasn't to be liked at that news station he's still going he he wants more. He's got now he's got several crews right. and he's expanding his business. Right. That that's why I think his primary goal was to be an entrepreneur, right. honestly. Because yeah, that's a theme in the movie is yeah. him being a self starter, him being a negotiator, him building his business. He was always he wasn't necessarily even in it for the money because it seems like he, he really just wanted to have a business that people saw as a successful business. Absolutely. In fact, uh, a very interesting thing is you when I first see that car he buys, the Camaro or Mustang, whatever yeah, it is. I think it's a red, red Mustang. At first, I was thinking like from the sense of like, oh, he's got some money now. He can afford a sweet ride. That's not why he bought that car. Because it's fast. He bought it because it was fast. He could get to make more money. So it wasn't... Right. In the end, he's driving these vans because now he can split his time. And, so, right. if, and he's still wearing like his job uniform and he doesn't look and like... And he still has the crappy apartment. Yeah. Right. So yeah. is it really the is it really the things? Right. Or it's just like the power or the, the climbing? It's the process? <laughs> yeah, it's a question. Is it the yeah. power? Is it... You know, and that's the other thing. Like when we left the movie, we, you and I were talking as, of course, we're going to do <laughs> when we leave any movie. I'm positive if we saw like, like a grown ups too. Yeah, we, we would talk for three hours after the movie about, you know, this and that. But you were saying like, yeah, he was like really in. I think this is what you were saying. And I'm, that is how I'm I playing talk. it up. I'm, I'm, I'm playing it up. But you were saying like, yeah, like he was just like methodically building his business and, and just, you know, just uh, in this color of like how devious of him. And I'm like, but that's every business yeah. person. Yeah. You know, it's just interesting how my point is, is it's interesting how when we paint a psychopathic character and they do anything, we see this dark, evil cloud over what they do. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do that because that might be the quote unquote right way to see it or a useful yeah. way of seeing it. But what does any entrepreneur do? They they push their business, they you know, they try to find a monopoly, they work the angles, they don't kill their competition. Right. Like but you know, they they might do some back deals with someone or, what, what about that research that says something like that high business success? Is correlated or something with psychopathic tendencies. I'm totally butchering whatever the research is, but yeah. I read something like that sometime in the Inquirer. <laughs> well, the research on that is difficult because 
you're talking about human beings and what do you define as success and what do you define as psychopathic and how many people would submit themselves to a you know psychopathy measure but the idea goes is that if you lack empathy but you don't have a sadistic streak <laughs> yeah then you might be better at business because you don't play by the same rules as everyone else does. Right. Someone enters into a negotiation with you. If you have empathy, the other person can use that empathy against you. Whereas if yeah. you have no empathy and the only thing you're thinking about is making the deal, you will do what it takes to make the deal. Like when I'm bartering with shop owners, yeah. I if I had no empathy, I guess I would barter with them. Yeah. But because... I I care about human beings right. and when someone asks me for a price I even know I'm supposed to play the game given my culture in that we never barter in Seattle for anything I feel like I'm conflicting with the person <laughs> and and I'm insulting them yeah. and I'm putting their product down and saying it's not worth that much and you're even supposed to do that yeah. you're supposed to get that's a joke that's ridiculous that's this I is, wouldn't give you 10 cents this is worth you know 10 I mean look at the craftsmanship it's really bad and so I, I can't do that. That's not. I would be doing you a favor if I if you paid me to take it off your hands. Right. Whereas if you're psychopathic and you lack empathy, then you don't care about insulting the other person. It's not even on your radar. So that's the idea. And and there's been a lot written about it. But honestly, it it's a little sensational in the news and the media, and it's it's a little bit more complicated. It's a lot more complicated in the way that it's yeah, portrayed. That makes sense. Another part of his personality was that he didn't have much rage. He was not particularly impulsive, if I remember right. He was very controlled. Very much so. Yeah. Because even when he attacks that guy at the beginning, you don't. he doesn't scream, he doesn't rage at him. He just does it because he wants to watch. Right. And Well, and he wants the medal. And he wants the medal, yeah. And then when he injures Bill Paxton, again, he's not angry. I mean, if he was rageful, he'd just run up to him and strangle him. But, you know, he waits th till the next yep. day and he calmly goes up to his van and, and breaks the, you know, the brake line. And then it's, it's not rage. It's, it's a controlled rage, I guess, is probably the way to put it. He did seem to have, he did seem to have something like, um, not jealousy, but you know, because basically I got the sense that he punished Paxton along with also using the sensational story because Paxton kind of like, well, you didn't take, because first of all, he was, he, you know, when he first tried to get advice from Bill Paxton, Bill was kind of like, he shooed him off, right? And so then later, I think when Paxton came like, hey, dude, you could really work with me and we could do this. I got the sense that not only probably in his mind, he was like, well, I, I could do it on my own, but he also got had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder at that point being like, ah, not you, dude. Like, you didn't help me, right? And so then when Bill comes back, like, well, guess what? You should take me on the offer. I got two vans and now it's the future, baby. I got the sense he's like, oh, really? Well, we'll see about that. Right, right. So there's a superiority or a narcissism. Yeah. I'm going to be the best. And anyone who threatens that, I will do what it takes to yeah. diminish them in whatever way yeah. I can. Another element of his personality that we mentioned before is no remorse, seemingly. Right. Zero. Zero. Zero remorse. Well, like when he's talking to the cop, he was as, it, 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 there was no breaking that ice. 
Yeah. Remember at the end when he's being interrogated right. by the lady cop and she's furious. She's like trying to get him and, and he's just like. Right. The cop no, knows. I'm sorry, man. Or the cop is very suspicious of Lewis and some of the things that he's done. And Lewis is, is very calmly like, oh, I, I don't, I don't know. know. I just do my job. Yeah. Again, not rattled. Yeah. No, no empathy. So another aspect of this is. Oh, and by the way, sorry, sorry. Even when she says to him, which I thought she was kind of going to get him. She's like, well, you're not showing empathy about your, about your partner dying. And I thought, aha. But then he, even then he's like, oh, he died doing what he loved, ma'am. Yeah. I was like, oh, you bastard. Right. And before we get into the psychology portion of this episode, I just want to comment a little bit on capitalism. I, I thought that this movie was a comment on capitalism, whether it was intended or not, in that everything is about money and prestige and power and influence and what money can get you. He, he has no caring for humans. The, the filming of human suffering makes money, so therefore he's going to do it. There's no thought about the morality of it or the meaning of it or... If it bleeds, it leads. Right. <laughs> it, there's no thought about, is this good for society? There's only thought about money and prestige. And that's what some would say is a critique of capitalism in that it's based on money and materialism and purchasing and you know getting people to spend their money on things. And this movie exemplifies that. He doesn't care about whether or not the man is suffering. He's going to put the camera in his face and because it's simple, he's this makes him money. Right. And then he's going to sell it and he's going to build his business. And to some extent, that's what a lot of corporations have done. Not corporations, not all corporations, of course, but, you know, like Citibank or these, these kinds of places or Enron, as you like to bring up sometimes. Mm -hmm. the, these, these businesses don't care and they're designed by right. capitalism, by the laws of this country to be purely concerned with making profit for right. their stockholders. The individuals are irrelevant. It's, it's the, right. the entity that is the corporation needs to make money and more money every year. Right. And there's there's no there's nothing in it regarding morality or the goodness for society or anything. It's only about making money. And if they're going to be moral, they either have a mission to do so, like Bill Gates for instance is giving all this money away, or they do it to make more money. Right. They they give to charity because then they can advertise that they give to charity right. and that makes them even more money. So and we can't fault corporations for that because that's the way the system is set up. And sometimes people are like, you know, well, what do you think? Like, we should do like communism or something. And and honestly, when people say that, <laughs> they don't even understand what communism is. Right. They they equate communism with totalitarianism, USSR, yeah, yeah. which is not communism per se. I mean, it's a it, they had a communist. Anyway, the point is, is no capitalism or communism without morality being discussed can run amok and harm human beings. We need to talk about the meaning of these things and whether or not something is right or wrong. Recently, Elizabeth Warren, Elizabeth Warren? Yeah. Senator from Massachusetts. She's my hero. 
she is going off on Citibank and talking about how there's a bill that is being passed or did pass or something that basically is allowing Citibank to be even bigger than before. Remember oh, I didn't the, know that. Yeah, remember the whole yeah. 2008? <clears throat> too big to fail. Yeah, they're, they're too big to fail, therefore we have to bail them out. Well, you would think after we bailed them out and, and, and saved our economy, we would have parsed up these these organizations yeah. so they they would never be too big to fail well now they're even bigger okay and there's and and a lot of banks went well i don't know that much about it but anyway the point is is that she's saying because citibank these corporations have so much money they influence our our governments to the point <clears throat> where now they're setting us up for another problem in the future and oh. our country has a long history of breaking up monopolies and right. making corporations smaller so that not only do they become that they prevent themselves from becoming too big to fail, but also to prevent them from running our country. Right. We don't want corporations running the, con the country. We want people running the country. We want, we want to be a democratic society where we elect officials and, and we, because uh, corporations don't listen to us. They don't care. Nope. They want to make money. Now, the government presumably is supposed to listen to us. Right? Right. So let's listen to the people. And so let's all rise up and start breaking windows. Just joking. I feel like that was where I was headed. But, <laughs> but anyway, so I thought it was a comment on capitalism because if you watch that, I know it's very high school, you know, American literature class of me to say, <laughs> but I think, I think it was as I was watching about halfway through, I was like, wow, this is, this is actually just a microcosm of capitalism. Well, I, I felt that it was like in a way, it was the spiritual successor to American Psycho because American Cycle was doing exactly that. You know, when he wrote the book, uh, Brendan Easton Ellis was making a commentary on capitalism and on the emptiness of that society yeah. and that time and that that uh, perspective. So, like the psych the psychopath character was really just the metaphor for everyone's empty, unempathetic shell around. You know how they they behaved around money and everything. But that was in the context of Wall Street and Wall Street High. Uh, privileged, you know, heirs and things like this. This was looking at it from like, oh, and here's someone that comes from nothing in an industry that's like in the gutter, but it's still the same kind of concept. It's right. the Yeah, it's yeah. There were a number of points in the movie where they had to have known they were at least kind of referencing American Psycho. Right. The I mean the the director, writer guy, I you know, for sure he saw American Psycho. Oh, yeah. And there are certain lines in it like when Lewis is he he is talking he it seems like the character in american psycho in that he he seems to be like reading it's like he read something in a, new, in a newspaper or, right. or online and is just reciting it as if it's his opinion or something yeah remember in fact remember when he goes to the restaurant he says uh, he actually says he, I, that's got to be a direct reference because he says uh he quotes what a magazine called the dish it's yeah. like, oh, so not New York Magazine, because I was, but it's like LA Magazine called it a playful little dish. Yeah. Something along those lines, which is an exact reference to right. the, the Patrick Bateman. All right, so let's go into the psychology here. Before we go into psychopathy and antisocial personality disorder, I thought we would talk about something that I want to start talking about more, and that is the MMPI-2 and how, how the test assesses for personality and how they often have different categorizations for personality that, that's useful. Berto, you remember taking the MMPI-2. It was one of the tests that was really long. Yep. It was a few years ago. Yeah. Well, I looked up your results, and so I, I never told you this, but uh, I'm going to tell you your code type is what they call it. Okay. So essentially, there are 10 different scales. 
they call them, you know, the MMPI scales. Ionian, the, Mixolydian. The, the clinical scales. Scale one is how hypochondriacal you are, if that's a word. How much... Oh, how, right. <laughs> they call it hypochondriasis. Scale two is depression, how much, how depressed you are. Scale three is, is hysteria, which is funny because, you know, we don't use that word anymore, but they still do. Four is psychopathic deviant, which is essentially psychopathy. Five, the scale five on MPI is this hilarious scale that's called masculinity femininity. Mm. And essentially, it's supposed to gauge how masculine or feminine you are, Ooh. which is kind of a useless scale when you think about it. it but the MMPI-2 was was developed, I think, back in the 40s or something, when they thought people being non-stereotypical to their gender, they thought of it as, as deviant. Scale 6 is paranoia. 7 is basically anxiety. There's another word for it, but I won't say. Scale 8 is schizophrenia. Scale 9 is hypomania or mania. And scale 0 or 10 is social introversion. Again, as if introversion is is pathological, but anyway. This is MMPI? Yeah. The Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. And this is the second version because they updated it. And it's, it's the personality measure that most psychologists use the most. There are a lot of other different personality oh. assessment measures, like the PA, PAI is often used. Or the MCMI is sometimes used, but the MMPI is 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 the most prevalent. So, Berto, when I looked up your test results, you had a code type of two nine, and I'm going to read this to you. So, essentially, you had a you had minor spikes in depression and hypomania. Okay. Okay. So, in other on. words, which was surprising because you didn't have a spike in in anxiety. So, so you had a. You so, had a, what does the two nine mean? So I'll tell you. Oh, okay. But but they were they were not very spiky spikes. They were just minor spikes. Okay. <laughs> because your personality is fairly healthy and stable. So so people with the two nine code type tend to be, and this is from a book by Graham called MMPI two Assessing Personality and Psychopathology Fourth Edition. So persons with the two nine code type tend to be self centered and narcissistic. So everything I'm about to say just downgrade to a lesser degree because you actually don't technically qualify for this code type because you're This is all about me, right? <laughs> yeah. Because your that your spikes aren't as high as what people with two nines more typically have. But anyway, so persons with two nine code type tend to be self centered and narcissistic. They ruminate excessively about self worth. <laughs> is that you? Oh yeah. Although they may express concern about achieving at a high level, it often appears that they set themselves up for failure. Is that right? Sure. Kind of. Yeah. In younger persons, the 2-9 code type may be suggestive of an identity crisis characterized by lack of personal and vocational direction. I mean, to some extent, that's true. To some, I mean, you've, yeah. you've had times that were like that, but other times sure. that weren't. Well, <laughs> the fact that you're a different job every week. Yeah, that's true. That's that. That could be an indication. Yeah. <laughs> identity crisis. Persons with this code type report feeling tense and anxious. And somatic complaints, bodily complaints, often centering in the upper GI tract are common. Is that true about you? Uh, Do you have stomach problems? Upper GI tract, like acid reflux kind of thing? Well, just stress and anxiety and bodily aches from stress. I definitely have bodily aches and stuff. 
Um, I don't know if it's upper GI though, but yeah, but although, I have lots of somatic complaints. Although they might not appear to be clinically depressed at the time they're examined, their histories typically suggest periods of serious depression. Excessive use of alcohol may be employed as an escape from stress and pressure. <laughs> right. <laughs> have you had periods of serious depression in the past? Um, I definitely know in retrospect that I must have been pretty depressed right around uh, 2004. Five or six or something, huh. because and and that's because like some of the symptoms, you know how they say like, oh, if you can't get out of bed, like if you don't feel like getting out of bed, right. like I remember just waking up and just it's like noon and I'm like I just have no desire to get out of bed. Hmm. And later I was like, oh yeah, I think I was depressed. <laughs> so it's 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 catching that. I mean the the scale two, which is a part of the two nine, is the depressive scale. So the two nine code type suggests individuals who are denying underlying feelings of inadequacy and worthlessness. No, not me. And defending against depression through excessive activity. Come on, come on, stop, stop, stop. I would say that, I mean, I wouldn't say that you're, you know, again, you're a lesser version of this, but I I would say you tend to do a lot of things to distract yourself, don't you? Yes. Like right now you're texting as we're talking about this. No, I'm writing my notes about this. Oh, so that's you. That's a 2-9. See, I I wrote down all the the various characteristics. Oh, well, I can give you this copy, but... but, I would say that there's some truth to that, right? And the way that you... That's surprisingly... I mean, you're right that it's not like I'm extreme in these categories, but that is surprisingly uh, revealing slash accurate of my experience. And this is the difference between personality inventories that you do online or astrology (laughs) or ones that you do in a Vogue magazine. It says that based on my sign, I'm going to get lucky this week. (laughs) Is that the MMPI has been researched empirically thousands and thousands of times and they match up actual hard data with the results of the test. And then over time, over the last 70 years, they're able to actually Hmm. say some things that that seemed true. And so... And wasn't that just like a ton of questions? It was. Like it was... Like, took you probably two hours. And it was like, uh, they would ask the same question from multiple angles to check for, you know... Yeah, Right, dedupe things. Yeah, and, but there are a lot of really odd questions that are associated with odd things. Uh-huh. Like, do you like magazines or TV? There's... I, that's yeah. That's, <laughs> and there's like old questions on there from back in the day, like that are... Don't make any sense today. When you're turning the dial on a yeah. on a rotator uh, radio, exactly. <laughs> so the co-type that I thought fit Lewis is a four nine, which is interesting because this is also a typical co-type for therapists <laughs> and psychologists, if I remember right. I, I'm pretty sure I I can't remember where I read it, but I think m- minor four nines are. Often, I mean, psychologists are often minor four nines, but I would consider him to be an extreme four nine. And four scale is the psychopathic deviant scale, and the nine is the manic scale, hypomania. All those different scales, when you take this, do you get like numbers for each one of those scales? Yeah. And based on the ones that are more atypical, that's how they determine your type? Right. So there are 10 different scales. Yeah. And so they have it on a vertical scale. So if you got 50 on scale one, you'd put a little dot on the 50 mark and 100 is up high and zeros down mm-hmm. low. And when you plot all these little dots across the page mm-hmm. and a computer does this for you, but or you can do it by hand, but it's yeah. 
massive pain in the ass, but you'll, you'll, you'll see a line. Uh-huh. And if anything is elevated, meaning that uh, there's pathology, you'll see a spike in, in the in the line. And so for you, there were there were spikes at two, and then it was relatively low, and then at nine there was another spike, and got then it. back down to ten. And what I'm guessing is got that it. if Lewis was a real person and he took this test, he would and he did it honestly, he would score high on four. Four is the the psychopathic, psychopathic. and then nine is hypomania because he didn't seem. He didn't seem like a hypochondriac, right? Right. He didn't seem to be hysterical, right? Right. He didn't seem to have any issues with masculinity, femininity. Seemed like an average dude. He didn't seem paranoid. Right. He didn't seem anxious at all. He was very not paranoid, like the opposite. If there's an opposite to paranoid, yeah, that was him. He didn't seem schizophrenic, like he didn't have any thought problems, mm-hmm. right? He didn't hallucinate, right? This sort of thing. And he also wasn't introverted. That's right, right? He was he was quite comfortable among people, but he did seem very active. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to be to, to some extent when people are slightly manic. These are the best entrepreneurs in the world because they will dedicate a lot of time and have a lot of energy to dedicate themselves to something. You right. know, you have to be a little manic. And that's why psychologists are often a little manic because in order to go through school and because being a psychologist is a fairly fairly unlazy profession, especially getting the degree, there are much less energetic things one could do in life, mm-hmm. you know? And so to some extent, I think that's why a lot of psychologists are, are a little manic. And then the other thing is, is to be a psychopath, to be a minor psychopath, you might be slightly outside of society and not really consider yourself to to be a conformist. Uh-huh. So if you're if you're not mean to people, but you're not a conformist, then you might actually have an elevation on the, on the psychopathic deviant because you don't think normal rules apply to you. Hmm. So I thought he was a four nine, and, and let's see if this makes sense. My cats are going to kill each other. Um, They're psychopaths. Such persons frequently get in trouble with the authorities because of antisocial behavior. Now, he didn't get in trouble with the authorities, but he very easily could have been. I mean, yeah. I guess at the end, a cop was yelling at him. Yeah. They have a poorly developed conscience. Definitely true. Yep. Easy morals and fluctuating ethical values. Definitely. Yep. <laughs> Alcoholism, fighting, marital problems, sexual acting out, and a wide array of delinquent acts are among the difficulties in which they may be involved. So we didn't see any drug use or alcoholism or fighting, but we did see, you know, some sexual acting out. He basically raped Rene Russo in a, in, a, in a way, I mean, one might not call yeah. it rape, but I don't know. I might. He, he definitely sexually harassed her or whatever, you know. Right. Well, I would say extorting someone for sex is, yeah. is you know, not... Is up there. <laughs> yeah. Individuals with the 4-9 code type are narcissistic, selfish, and self-indulgent. We can yep. definitely say that's true about him. They are quite impulsive and, unab- and unable to delay gratification of their impulses. We could say that that's not true about him. He was not impulsive at all. He was one of the most methodical, smartest, well-thought-out guys I'd ever seen. I mean, he 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 did very well with regards to his Im- impulse control. Aside from the beginning, when he goes after well, the guard, I, that's an interesting thing. Though, like, I, I wonder if there's a difference between in the moment impulse versus also being able to plan. And, and what I mean by that is, uh, you know, you read some of these biographies of Ted Bundy or things like this, and it's like, and they form these complex plans to do things 
but they're also super impulsive in the moment. Right. And so I got the sense that in some cases he's like, oh, I got caught. Oh, I like that watch. Oh, I'll just mess this guy up. In other cases, like, oh, I'm interested in that car crash. I'm just going to go walk right up. So there's like a yeah, sense of that impulsivity. But in but, my mind, that's know? not impulsive. That was him just not caring about certain things. Mm-hmm. And if you and I didn't care about our own bodily safety and weren't afraid of gore, because I wouldn't want to stop to look at a car crash for fear I would see something awful. I mean, I saw an awful car crash on the way back from Wazoo after Apple Cup once. And I, I, that was 25 years ago. And the images from the, the bodies that were dead yeah. are burnt in my head. Yeah. So I think he stopped because, not because of what I would call impulsivity, he stopped because he just didn't have that same empathy for humans and just didn't care. And in that way, everyone would stop if they didn't care because they would go, oh, I wonder what this is. You know, I, yeah. I, I want to see, this looks like an interesting thing. It's sort of like when you're driving through Yellowstone and you see a, a buffalo, everyone stops to look <laughs> right. or a moose or something. So that's kind of, that's not impulsive. You just say, well, that's mm. an interesting thing. I'm going to look at it. Impulsivity is something like when Bill Paxton and him were getting in a, were getting in a little argument about, you know, when, when Bill Paxton says, hey, join me in my business and Lewis is like, no. Then Bill Paxton turns on him and starts berating him. Lewis completely is controlled. Bill Paxton is the impulsive one. I mean, why yeah, get yeah. nasty? And all he, got, all he has to do is turn around and go home. But Bill Paxton starts berating him, and, and Lewis keeps it together very well. I mean, I, I have to say, I mean, I'm not an impulsive person or a violent person, but the way Bill Paxton, if he was talking to me like that, like, I might punch him in the face, you know, even though I've, I don't think I've ever done that. Yeah, life. yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I see what you're saying, actually. That makes sense. I was thinking more like, uh, going back to the Ted Bundy example, there are examples of where he was definitely impulsive because it would, because th- in the movie, this guy didn't actually do things that would, uh, sorry, he was very careful about not getting caught. You know what I mean? Whereas like you read like Ted Bundy is like already in the courtroom and then he jumps out of the building and then within a day, he's already raping someone else right. and killing someone else. Right. I think in the, well, yeah. So but, like that to me, that's impulsive, right. <laughs> but you're right. I didn't see anything like that. Right. Where it was like, oh, I, he's in the cop station, he leaves, and he's already breaking the law right, right. in front of the cop station. So, <laughs> in this way, Lewis doesn't exemplify a quintessential 4-9, because they will often have that kind of mm-hmm. presentation. Okay, going on, 4-9 people, they show poor judgment, often often acting without considering the consequences of their acts, and they fail to learn from experience. And this, I would say, doesn't fit Lewis. Because I think if you make a movie about someone like that, it's not as interesting. <laughs> I think that that's one thing that I think they often do in these movies whenever they're trying to portray a psychopath is they they like to make the psychopath very smart too the cannibal lecter yeah they always like to make the the they, they take away certain elements of psychopathy to make the person seem more interesting I yeah think. that's so. true persons with the 49 code type tend to be ambitious and energetic and they are restless and overactive we could say that he's ambitious and energetic but i wouldn't call him restless or overactive one might you could say that they are likely to seek out emotional stimulation and excitement we could say that about him right in social situations they tend to be uninhibited extroverted and talkative Mm -hmm. and they create a good first impression yeah is that him yeah in general that's true 
However, because of their self-centeredness and distrust of people, their relationships are likely to be superficial and not particularly rewarding. So I could go on. But anyway, so so you get the picture. That, yeah, so, that sounds mostly, yeah. I mean, except for what you were pointing out, uh, that sounds very much like that type. All right. So let's get into the more common ways that these sorts of people are talked about in terms of antisocial personality disorder, psychopathy, and sociopathy. These are three words that often get thrown around, and a lot of authors in psychology will even use these words interchangeably. And, and I'm not talking about psych, psychology authors that don't know what they're talking about. I'm talking about people that are well-known and well-respected will use antisocial personality disorder as a synonym for psychopathy, as a synonym for sociopathy. And then other people draw distinctions between them. The history of these different terms is the word psychopath was first used, I believe, in 1941. Then came sociopath. And, and then in 1968, when the DSM-2 was published, we had the introduction of antisocial personality disorder. Now, and, and only recently... I don't know, past 20 years or something, psychopathy is starting to gain more interest. I, I don't know why that is, but for even though psychopathy isn't in any of the DSMs and antisocial personality disorder is, a lot of people like to use the word psychopath as opposed to antisocial. I don't yeah. know why that is, but I think psychopath sounds worse or something. But, it's also easier to say. <laughs> yeah. Some and you can, oh, sorry. And you can't call someone, you are an antisocial personality disorder. Right. <laughs> it's too long. Yeah. Right. Where you can call them psychopathic. Yeah. Right. And there's another one that sometimes gets talked about that's associated with this, but doesn't get talked about much anymore is sadistic personality disorder. And I'll get into hmm. that more later. So the psychopathy, antisocial personality disorder, these are often considered a close cousin to narcissistic personality disorder. That should be noted. Some say we should just label them all as criminals or bad people rather than labeling them with a mental disorder. There is this type of person that is kind of, how do I say this? Someone you would know and every day it's almost the same, but you know what? They cheat a little. You know, they definitely cut corners. And then there's the thug. You know, the thug is the, he just doesn't care too much if he has to rough someone up. But he's not going to try to kill as much. You know, if he doesn't have to kill, he's not going to kill someone, right? And in fact, he may never have killed someone. But he's roughed quite a bit of people, stolen some wallets, right. gone to jail a couple of times. And then you go all the way to the other extremes, which is like, this guy eats brains and cooks livers with fava beans. Right. And so this is where we talk about the philosophy behind mental illness and the philosophy behind morality and how mm -hmm. these two things overlap. And what I'll say, and I won't go into the full debate, but basically when we talk about a personality disorder, it's not necessarily that the person does something horrible. Now you're talking about behaviors that are bad, right? Mm -hmm. The thug is doing bad, they're, they're you know, mugging people. And then the cheater is cheating people out of money at a poker game. Right. And then you have the guy who eats people's livers with, with fava beans. Well, these are behaviors, and, and they're morally reprehensible, they're evil, they're bad, they're antisocial in that way. It's an antisocial behavior as opposed to a prosocial behavior. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they have a personality disorder. It, right, so, so right. for instance, you and me, if, if we decided to go out tonight and kill a bunch of people and eat their livers with fava beans, all the while having 
a very difficult time doing it, but doing it nonetheless, that doesn't mean we, we're psychopathic. It means we did something morally reprehensible and illegal and terrible, but it doesn't mean that we're psychopathic. So that's an important right. distinction. We often say, well, he's psychopathic, therefore he must be doing bad things. And that's not necessarily true. It, it just means that they meet the criteria for psychopathy. And the, and the flip side might be true. might also not be true. And often is. Yeah. There are plenty of people that do horrible things that don't qualify for yeah. the disorder. I guess what I was what I was thinking is it, it also would not do a service, I think, to anything to lump all criminals as they're just criminals because it's like giving the same sentence to everyone regardless of, quote unquote, the crime. Right. Yeah. In a way, it's like the labels in some ways do help categorize. Uh, and but yeah, anyways. Right. And so now if someone breaks the law, then the law should deal with them yeah. and often does. Okay. So let's get into, get into psychopathy. So as we've talked about mental illness in previous episodes, I will remind everyone that these are constructs that we construct together as a society and as a profession in psychology. This is not something that is something that is concrete. Um, one thing that I often like to bring up, and that's a, as an example of this, that I'll never forget is I remember talking with a younger person about the Beastie Boys and I like they were saying yeah I like rap and 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 I said oh yeah I like the Beastie Boys and she's like the Beastie Boys isn't rap oh my god that's rock she said oh wow and and I thought what are you talking about? They're rappers, you know? Yeah. When I was a kid in the 80s, yeah. you had Beastie Boys. There's some of the original DMC. rappers. Yeah, they they rap. And so that's a, it's a matter of categorization. Yeah. Do we call the Beastie Boys rap or do we call it rock? The people who call it rap can give their justification and the people right. who call it rock can give theirs. And then other people will say, let's just call it music or let's call it crap or something. Yeah. So it, it's, it all depends on your criteria and how you measure those criteria. The, the criteria that I have for rap is when you say words instead of singing. That's rapping, you know, instead of going la, 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 you're going, hey, 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 right? <laughs> and whereas her definition of, ro of rap versus rock that I discovered is that they're white, therefore they can't be, <laughs> plus they play their own instruments on later albums. Right. So they're not, they're obviously not rap. The rap artists don't play their own drums, bass, and guitar, <laughs> and they also are never white. And so, you know, the Beastie Boys are obviously rock. So, you know, and each person <laughs> is entitled to their definition. And so when we talk about psychopathy, that's all we're talking about is is a socially constructed co idea that doesn't have a lot of things to hang your hat on that are clear. So one person, one clinician could say that person is a psychopath and the other person could say, no, they're not. And it would be hard to, to say who's right because it just depends on how you define things and how you look at the data. So... So what are the symptoms of psychopathy off the top of your head? Um, lack of empathy, okay. um, uh, impulsivity, mm -hmm. uh, antisocial tendencies, or, you know, like basically ignoring the law. Okay. Uh, uh, lying. Yep. Deception. Yep. Um, and lack of regret, uh, remorse, lack of remorse. Yeah. Um, those are the big ones. Aggressiveness. Aggressiveness. Those are the big ones. And and eating fava beans. And even fava beans, yeah. yeah. So if we look at the PCL or the psychopathy checklist, which is the most famous measure for psychopathy, 
uh, we find the following 20 different Whoa. symptoms. And you hit on a number of them. Uh, so the first one is glib or superficial charm mm, that we mentioned earlier. I forgot about that. So it's, it's an interesting one, you know, because you wouldn't think that superficial charm is associated with psychopathy, but it often is. Hey, that haircut looks nice, by the way. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, they're often grandiose about their, their self-image. They exaggerate their self-image. Dude, I've been saying that for 20 years about psychopaths. Actually, while we do this, let's, let's, let's use the measure, mm-hmm. the PCL, to, to see if Lewis is a psychopath or not. Yeah. Okay. So s- give me a zero, one, or two. Zero means no. Two means definitely yes. And, and one, one means maybe, maybe some aspects and some not aspects. Okay. So it's a judgment call. So again, this is why people disagree about... Okay. These sorts of things, because it requires a judgment call. Okay, so glib, glib and superficial charm. Two. Definitely, yeah. They yeah. definitely did their homework on that. Grandiose estimation of self. Two. Really? Yeah. What's your evidence? Okay, the evidence is that he really believes he can take over the news industry, essentially, right. from starting from nothing, with no nothing. Okay. No experience, nothing. He believes he can be on the top of the world. That's true. And when he talks about his business acumen mm-hmm. or his philosophy, he talks like he's like he's giving a lecture. Bill Gates or yeah. something, as if he's succeeded already mm-hmm. when he's he hasn't at all. Yeah. Right. Okay. Need for stimulation. Yeah. I mean, I'd say I'd say it. I mean, it's it's funny. You said earlier, like definitely. I wasn't sure if what we, what he was after was the stimulation or not. So I, I would at least go one for sure. Yeah, I would go a one, two. On, I would go one as well on uh-huh. this because if he were a two, I would expect more strip clubs, yeah. more alcohol and drugs right. and this sort of thing because yeah. that's usually what we mean by need okay. for stimulation. Whereas he was totally fine waiting around yeah. and being bored. Okay, pathological lying. Two. Definitely a massive liar. Uh, cunning and man- manipulativeness. Uh, yeah, uh, two. <laughs> yeah. He yeah. manipulated both the kid and her yeah. and Bill Paxton. Well, I guess not quite manipulated Bill Paxton. But he manipulated the entire news station. Oh, yeah, definitely. Into advertising for his business. Yeah. Lack of remorse or guilt. Yeah, two. <laughs> yeah. Shallow affect or lack of emotion. Two, for sure. Uh, lack of empathy. Two. Parasitic lifestyle. In other words, intentional Wait. financial dependence on others or avoids normal employment. Well, that's an interesting one. Like the parasitic part, yeah, I guess he's living off the deaths of these people. But No, I mean, you could say that's everyone. Uh-huh. So I would say that's a zero because he was definitely- well, but, but the second half of that, though- the second half of what you read avoids normal. I mean, we're avoids talking normal. Jobs. He has a totally normal job in society. I mean, it's not a normal job, but what what usually what it means is that people will live off their families. They'll say, "Oh, I'm getting." He I'm, was stealing metal. I know, but this refers to because the reason why you and I eventually got to the age where we wanted our own job and our own money was because we didn't want to be a parasite on our parents yeah. and our family members. He clearly is not trying to be a parasite of, of someone to depend on. That's yeah. true. And that, that's, that's what it means. It's, okay. not, it's not like you have an odd job. Okay. Um, poor behavioral controls. In other words, being hot-headed. Uh, one. 
Okay. Well, I mean, I know you're, you're saying he's completely in control. Yeah. I mean, the typical psychopath will get in fights frequently because they can't control their temper. Okay. All right. Uh, so okay, I'm gonna, maybe I could go I'm zero gonna, on I'm that. I'm going to put that as zero personally. Sexual promiscuity. I feel like... It's, that's an interesting one because I feel like he wasn't really that, it wasn't that important to him except that he needed some companionship. Yeah, I would say he was extremely not promiscuous. Yeah. He was, in fact, mon- monogamous, monogamous or celibate. <laughs> yeah. Early behavioral problems, meaning before the age of we, 12. We don't know, but I would guess so. Yeah, we don't know. So we'll I would put, give at least a one. Well, we don't know. We have no data. No data. Got, if, oh, I see. You have to go off data. You can't go off guessing. Lack of realistic long-term goals. No, zero. Zero. Well, actually, okay, that's funny. Maybe in the beginning. That's funny, no. Realistic, I think everyone, if he talked to it, yeah, at the beginning of the movie, he's like, dude, you're completely unrealistic. Well, and when he again, walks into the t- that- again, the typical way that we see this is someone saying... I'm going to be Bill Gates or, yeah. or, but, but I, but I'm still mooching off my parents, yeah, well, but, but we don't see any of that. I, I would know, man. In I, the movies like this, they typically will pick and choose the different psychopathic traits that they want to have yeah. that are, that are, that make a better movie. The other yeah. thing is, is that psychopaths will have varying degrees of these, of these. No, and, and I get that. And I see your point, but, but get this though. It, the only reason his crazy, ridiculous ambitions were even on the way to becoming true is because of how wacko he's willing to be. Right. How he's willing to murder and fabricate facts and all these to things. To me, I think right? we'd have to see more data. We'd have to know him prior to the movie because but, yeah. he, he, his, each goal he had was realistic in that when he first started filming, he didn't have a goal of being the best in the city and having his own employees. He had this goal of just making the right. same money that Bill Paxton. Right. And then once he started doing that, Fine. impulsivity. You're saying zero. I'm saying zero. Because I think I think you just want to see him as being bad about everything. No, because, no, because no. in order, because again, true pathological impulsivity is quite different. No, no, him. but I agree with you on the impulsivity. I'm just there's a few of them where I'm like, I'm not entirely sure we would call him realistic. But keep going. Right, uh, irresponsibility. I mean, depending on how that's defined, yeah, he's only responsible to himself. Well, well, irresponsibility in that, for instance, the, the irresponsible behavior that I would see him doing is being pretty risky regarding his behavior. He stole a bike. That's not very responsible. Like, like what I'm saying is like I wouldn't entrust a living soul with him or a plant. I wouldn't entrust a cat. He did keep a... track of that plant. That was another aspect of the movie where he had a plant that yeah. he actually t- took care of. Yeah, um, so. I'm going to give it a one because... Yeah, okay. One's fine. Yeah. Uh, failure to accept responsibility for own actions. Well, certainly. I mean, in any legal sense, at the very least. <laughs> well, it's, it's an interesting. Legal question. moral sense, Be- because because in one way he lacks remorse for it, but we don't know if he doesn't take ex- responsibility. Because, say, you were to talk with him and say. I don't know if he would say, I didn't do that. The way they portrayed him, he totally knew what he was doing. What people, what psychopaths will do is they will almost be in denial about what they did. Like, oh, but I, I could see it. Like, here's, here's, I would, I would basically not be surprised if you said in the, and there's no repercussions, and you're like, so did you, did you kill Bill Paxton's character? Right. I would not be surprised if he's like, hey, man, you should always check your brakes. 
Right. You know, like, oh, and then it's like, did you kill your sidekick? Ah, he knew what he was getting into. He, he took the risk. In fact, he told that to, right. and so, I, but, and so I, we don't know. It, we don't know. He could yes. say, yes, yes, I did. There's no evidence presented to us in the movie other so, than, yeah. I think we're going to do a question mark on that yeah. one because that one's unknown. Many short term marital relationships. We have no idea. But, but it doesn't look it. like it. It doesn't look like it. So it's here. Juvenile delinquency. Big question mark. Revocation of conditional release. That one doesn't apply. And criminal versatility. Many different offenses. Uh, versatility? Yeah. Two. Right? Right. Because we see him yeah. doing a number of different... And he steals, he cheats, he kills, he frames, he right. sabotages, whatever, whatever. Okay. So this is interesting. So according to this, he does not fit the diagnosis for psychopathy. <laughs> Really? Yeah. Because again, he he has some of the aspects of psychopathy, but not some of the m- major ones. Like his behavioral control, sexual promiscuity, impulsivity, many short-term marital relationships or mm. romantic relationships. Right. And there's information we lacked. And we, we don't we put have put him over the edge. But I mean. well, I estimated for those. I basically I basically just gave him twos and all the question marks and he still doesn't qualify. So, so it's actually kind of hard to qualify for the full personality disorder, but a lot of people do. When you meet someone like this, they will meet a lot of the criteria and will score quite high. You know, they'll, they'll score twos on a majority of them rather yeah. than only on some of them the way we did with him. The other thing here is we get into the construct problem in that he's clearly what I would call a psychopath. But he doesn't meet the PCL, this particular measure's version, definition of what a psychopath is. Well, because uh, yeah. because it, to me, it depends on what you consider to be central to psychopathy. And, and this is one of the problems with this measure, is that, say, for instance, you were glib, you lied a lot, you had shallow affect, you were parasitic, you had a lot of sex, but you had a lot of remorse and you had a lot of empathy. To me, that person is not a psychopath because to me, a central element of a psychopath is lacking remorse and not having empathy for other human beings. But according to the established definition, particularly of the PCL regarding psychopathy, you can qualify for the disorder and still have empathy and remorse for for what you do. So that's why I think we get into this. We have to have a conversation about it, you know? So what I would have said based on my... Growing up, understanding about different words, <laughs> uh, I would have said the following. To me, he's a sociopath. He's not a psychopath. Well, you and, would really win that argument because there's not a very well-defined <laughs> uh, uh, version right. of sociopathy. But, but, but yeah, that, that makes sense. To me, it's because like growing up, um, I remember my dad kind of using those words as well. And, you know, uh, one, one other thing was, to me, sociopath for, for whatever reason, implies the antisocial parts, but without the gruesome killing, mm-hmm. right? And I, I'm not saying it's right. That's just, to me, that implies that. Okay. Whereas a psychopath, to me, it always implies like, oh yeah, how many people did he kill? And so, and how gruesome were those deaths? Yeah. You know, which it, it, which yeah. it doesn't. And I just want to yeah. be clear right, about that. Right, right. The vast so, majority of people that qualify for psychopathy don't kill anybody. Right. So well, let's go into the DSM-5. And look at antisocial personality disorder. And I'll read this and you tell me if he qualifies. A pervasive pattern of disregard for and violation of the rights of others occurring since the age of 15 years 
as indicated by three or more of the following. So a pervasive pattern. We definitely see a consistent yep. personality with yep. him. It's not like he sometimes was this nope. way. <laughs> he was definitely that way all the time. Disregard for the rights of other people. Yep. We'd say yes, absolutely. Occurring since the age of 15 years, we have no idea, but it doesn't it, seem likely that this suddenly developed, but we don't know. But yep. but we would have to interview him or other people to, to yep. get that data point. As indicated by three or more of the following. Okay, so there are seven different criteria. By the way, is there? do you know if there's any, are, are there cases of people developing psychopathy or, or antisocial things like this from head injuries? I would have to look up the research on okay. that, but I don't think specifically a, a quintessential psychopathy, but elements of it. Okay. I mean, I, I know of a case of someone that had some sort of injury or brain surgery or something, and they developed pedophilia when before what? that when before that they didn't have it oh, at that's all. That's bizarre. Yeah. So it, it brings up this interesting question when you have deviant behavior like paraphilias, like pedophilia, if it's a disorder of the brain, which I think there's strong evidence for. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the so we'll see if he qualifies for three more of the following. Number one, failure to conform to social norms with respect to lawful behaviors as indicated by repeatedly performing acts that are grounds for arrest. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> Number two, deceitfulness as indicated by repeated lying, use of aliases, or conning others for personal profit or pleasure. Yeah. Yes. Three, impulsivity or failure to plan ahead. No. No. Four, irritability and aggressiveness as indicated by repeated physical fights or assaults. No. No. Five, reckless reckless disregard for safety of self or others. Yes. Yeah. So we, by that, he qualifies for the diagnosis. Because it's three out of five? Yeah. Oh. Well, three out of seven, but oh, let's go to the last two. Consistent irresponsibility as indicated by repeated failure to sustain consistent work behavior or honor financial obligations. No. Uh, uh, uh. We don't know. I mean, prior prior to this, maybe, but again, when you meet someone who qualifies for this particular criterion, there's no question that they're irresponsible. They mooch off other people. They, you know, their their wife will often say he doesn't get a job. He's just in the garage all the time, and he says he's working on some internet thing that never pans out. That's what you often will hear. Okay, the last one: lack of lack of remorse, as indicated by being indifferent to or rationalizing having hurt, mistreated, or stolen from another. Yep. Yes. Okay, so he qualifies. He he meets the criteria according to two diagnosticians for four out of the seven. And that's more than three. Therefore, he qualifies for the disorder. The, uh, the last criterion criteria are here. The individual is at least 18 years. Yes. There is evidence of conduct disorder with onset before the age of 15 years. We don't know. The occurrence of antisocial behavior is not exclusively during the course of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. And there's really no, ev- there's no evidence of schizophrenia or bipolar. So, so okay. he's antisocial, but he's not a psychopath. Right. So isn't that interesting? <laughs> However, I would definitely call him a psychopath, just, just yeah, for the record. At least a psycho. But listen, you know, one, one interesting thing about that result is it actually matches what the movie did for me, which is defied my expectations of what was going to happen. Because I actually thought when the movie, I, I didn't know anything, I hadn't read anything about it. But when the movie started, I fully assumed that he had already been in a string of killings. Like when he first attacks that dude, I thought, oh, I see, he's a serial killer. Okay. And I thought that was literally what we, what he was going to do to get the ratings was just right. keep killing people and filming it. 
And he didn't. That wasn't what the movie was. So it right. almost matches the fact that, oh, wait, he's not a psychopath. Right. Well, <laughs> Again, I know you'll say, no, but it's not at the psychopath part. It's not about the killing. <laughs> right. That's the common definition, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Yeah. According to research, studies have found that 45% of prisoners qualified for the antisocial personality disorder diagnosis, but only 32% qualified for psychopathy. Oh, wow. So this shows that it's easier to qualify for the antisocial personality disorder diagnosis than it is for psychopathy. Right. And the other thing here is that antisocial personality is based on behaviors like criminality and, and these sort of things, whereas psychopathy is more based on your overall personality. So that clearly, in, indisputably proves that psychopaths are genius masterminds that don't get caught by the law. <laughs> yeah. yeah, since... 32% of prisoners qualify <laughs> for psychopathy. So this is another point that we were talking about earlier is that, you know, less than half qualify for these diagnoses, meaning that the other half committed a major crime, but weren't, don't qualify for the diagnosis of psychopathy or antisocial personality disorder. Right. That'd be interesting to, so, to see. So there are a lot of people in prison, murderers that have committed murder that have the same remorse level that we do and have the same right. emotionality as we do. And that's a, an important right. thing to, to point out because it doesn't take someone to have a lack of empathy to kill someone. Anyone's capable of killing somebody. Well, and there's, there's, a, there's a lot of people in this country imprisoned for nonviolent crimes. Right. And they found and that... pot and blah. Yeah, and, but yeah. still there are a lot of murders. But yeah. the, they did find that the psychopaths and the antisocial people tended to commit the more serious crimes upon other human beings like rape and murder and these kinds of things. Yeah, that's not shocking. No. Yeah. So generally speaking, people with antisocial personality disorder and psychopaths feel as though the rules of society don't apply to them. They're selfish. They're out for themselves, probably because they lack empathy for other people. Right. If if they had more empathy, they'd be less selfish and they'd be less out for themselves. I mean, you could argue that antisocial people and psychopathic people have the same level of selfishness as normal people, but because they lack empathy, they just act out that selfishness more often. Right. You know, everyone enters the world fairly selfish. Right. And if you and and we learn through empathy and through experience with other human beings, that we can't always just take what we want from people. Yeah. And we learn that that's not going to be a good way to live because not only will people hate us, but we actually will feel the other person's pain as we develop. We start mm -hmm. noticing the, the cues of other people's pain. You know, like we say a racist joke and someone grimaces and we feel that grimace mm -hmm. ourselves because we have empathy. We feel that person's pain. It's like we said something, they felt pain, and then we feel their pain, and we say, oh, my God, I did that. I don't want to do that again. Right, right. If you don't have that empathy, then you just continue being selfish the way, yeah. perhaps, that we're born. Um, that's interesting. So, potentially, some of, the, some of the behaviors that result from their lack of empathy are just accentuations of things that we like selfishness that we normally have. Right. They're just not filtered anymore. Right. And that's a perhaps better way of looking at psychopaths because the way typically people look at psychopaths is, oh, they're murderers. But it's not that they're murderers. It's that they don't feel other people's pain. And so when... And the vast majority of psychopaths don't kill someone because... Because another thing you could say is... We've all had a murderous or at least a assault sort of impulse. 
we've all had an impulse in our mind, an urge right. to punch someone in the face. And if we had a knife or a gun, we might have an impulse to kill that person. Right. But we don't do it because we know it's wrong. And for those of us that have empathy, we don't want to hurt those people. But it could be argued that it, when you're in that rageful state, you don't have a lot of empathy for the other person. No. But we don't do it because we know it's wrong. Well, people that are psychopathic might also have that same thought. Like, well, if I do this, I'm going to get caught by the police and go to jail forever. I, they're not necessarily stupid yeah, yeah. in that way. But, but their impulsivity might get in the way sometimes. Yeah, they might. But at the same time, you know, they lack empathy. And so that will play out. The, the thing that I want people to walk away with is that tying psychopathy and antisocial personality disorder to murder is a mistake because the vast majority of people that have antisocial personality disorder and qualify for the psychopathy diagnosis do not kill people. They are out there harming humans in an emotional way. Right. They're out there being uh, very hurtful to people. They're they're being abusive. Right. They're calling people names. They're they're systematically breaking people down. They're finding vulnerable people to exploit, and they are creating a lot of social havoc around them. With and they never kill someone. That's the thing I think people should walk away with. Almost we almost need a th- a third word. Like we need one more word to separate the true psychos from the the rest of us. Or not just us, but the rest of the psychopaths. <laughs> what do you mean? There's so there's psychopaths and then there's crazy bad shit psychos. Well, you know? <laughs> mur- murdering psychopaths maybe. Yeah. Or axe murderers. <laughs> well, I would add the word sadistic. Sadistic, yeah. You know, Patrick Bateman was sadistic. Oh, by the way, can we do that questionnaire on Patrick Bateman? Oh, do you want to? Yeah. All right. Uh, the psychopath one. Yeah. Okay. Glib or superficial charm? Glib or superficial charm. Two. Uh, grandiose estimation of self. Two. <laughs> Need for stimulation. Two. <laughs> Pathological lying. Two. <laughs> Cunning and manipulative. Two. Lack of remorse. Two. Although in the end, he seemed to have some remorse, but maybe not. Not remorse. He was just trying to like, like he was, he was too stressed about the whole thing. Shallow affect. Two. Callousness, lack of empathy. Two. Parasitic lifestyle. Two. Kind of was actually. Yeah. Because we don't know. How did he get that? He's like doing nothing. (laughs) Poor behavioral controls. Two. (laughs) At the end. Yeah. Yeah. Sexual promiscuity. Two. Early behavioral problems. Two. We don't know. Oh, yeah, because in the earlier novels. Oh, we do? Yeah. Oh, okay. Mr. Read the Novels over here. Lack of realistic long-term goals. Two. Two? What's his goal? Yeah. <laughs> but I don't He's know. got I'm, no I'm goal. I'm going to give that one a one because he doesn't... I don't Fine. Know <laughs> Impulsivity. Two. Absolutely. The cat, the thing, the stuff, yeah. it's all over the place. Yeah. Irresponsibility. Two. Two. <laughs> Failure to accept responsibility Two. for own actions. Many short-term marital relationships. Two. Well, I mean, you could see or, he's already or, he's already divorcing. What's her name? Right. <laughs> he hasn't partner, even married. Her. Many short-term yeah, yeah. relationships yes. is what they probably should say. Yeah. Juvenile delinquency. Do we we know? don't know. We don't know. Question mark. Revocation of conditional release. He doesn't apply because no, he apply. was not being released from prison. And criminal versatility. To I would say, you know, he. Yeah. 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 So yes, he qualifies. Yeah. He, he he only he, we only gave him a one, and that was because of me. Yeah. And so uh, he he's very close to the top number of forty. Hey, let's put it this way: if he doesn't qualify, we just we just need a new word. <laughs> well, again, this is a movie, so yeah, yeah. you know. So so Bateman 
seems to be about a 38 out of 40, and Lewis seems to be about a 26. Right. So again, because we don't see the same impulsivity or irresponsibility in him, right. or at least we don't see it in the span of the movie. That No, it's getting. very clear that control-wise, Bateman's on the verge of collapse almost the entire time. Yeah. And he's, like, he's riding this fine line, and... and uh, and he does things for no other reason than to than to harm people. Whereas yeah. with Lewis, every single time he hurt someone was instrumental. Right. It was something that he, there's a goal to it. Right. In that way, he's less psychopathic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because and then the impulsivity thing, like he'll be like having sex with the hookers, and all of a sudden he's like eating one of them. Right. Like, what are you doing? He yeah. like calm down. You know. Right. He kills that bum in the alley. Yeah. For no reason, yep. there's there's nothing, and he wasn't planning on. There's doing no planning, it. and in fact, he was trying to help him. Yeah, he was being nice, and then all yeah, of a sudden, yeah. he just kills him. Totally yes. impulsive. Yes, yeah. Sometimes antisocial personality disorder is used for people who have empathy but just grew up on the wrong side of the tracks and therefore are more prone to criminality. This is one of the problems I have with this. This because when you call someone having a personality disorder, you're talking about a pervasive personality issue right. that is that is consistent regardless of the context that they're in. So imagine you're a guy who grows up in, you know, an urban poor neighborhood and you have parents that are drug addicted and working really hard and don't have a lot of time for you and you have a lot of criminals around you that a lot of hustlers that sell drugs and get into fights a lot. And, you know, certainly there are neighborhoods like this in every American city. Well, so so let's look at the antisocial personality disorder criteria. Failure to conform to social norms with respect to lawful behaviors. Well, they definitely fit that qua- right. that criteria. Right. That criterion. Deceitfulness, as indicated by repeated lying. The use, use of aliases and conning others for personal profit or pleasure. They, well, they might. if he's that type of hustler, then yeah. absolutely. Impulsivity or failure to plan ahead. You could definitely make a case for an urban poor youth that has to turn to criminality in order to make ends meet. You could definitely say he's not planning ahead, or at least someone from the other side of the tracks would call it that. Irritability. So right there, we have three criteria. But we look at irritability and aggressiveness, as indicated by repeated physical fights. If you're in a lot of gang fights, reckless disregard for safety of self and others. Absolutely. Maybe, yeah. Consistent irresponsibility. Yep. Totally. Lack of remorse. Now that, that that's questionable. Well, so, so even if they don't have that quality, they still qualify for. They still qualify for antisocial personality disorder, even more than Lewis does, because that was six out of or five or six out of seven, where Lewis I think was four. And so you can see why antisocial personality disorder as a construct has major problems. And this is why another reason yeah. why people hate the DSM five. Yeah. Because you can take someone who grows up in a particular context where criminality is the only way to make ends meet, and the only Right. And, and it's all around you, and that's the, the, the group of people that are around you. And then you technically qualify for personality yeah. disorder. That doesn't make any yeah. sense. And the fact that it's, yeah, like you said, the, the label personality disorder, because those same qualifications could be legal legal qualifications. Like, let's see if this person qualifies to be indicted, for example. Yeah. Oh, the, this, this. Okay, fine. Let's indict. Right. As opposed to a personality disorder. Right. To me, <laughs> if you just want to say a set of behaviors 
that we can call antisocial, like this person lives an antisocial lifestyle, right. then absolutely. But to call it a personality disorder that is often associated with a lack of remorse and lack of empathy, yeah. then that's problematic, right? If yeah. you meet a guy and he has been diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, I'm going to assume the guy lacks empathy, right. whereas that might not be the case. Uh, another thing about uh, people with antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy is that they're prone to alcoholism and drug use to relieve their irritability and boredom. This is something that neither one of them, Patrick Bateman or Lewis, exhibited, right? Well, Bateman's always doing lines of coke and... Oh, he was? He's, yeah, and, and if you think about it, he's uh, he's always drinking something, right? Like he's always... Well, no, he's always eating out and drinking out, you know, like always in clubs and bars all the time. Yeah. But you never see him like drunk or... Right. Yeah, that's And true. you'll often see that among yeah. people uh, that fit these categories. His, his friend is more like that, Timothy Price. Yeah. So we've talked about antisocial personality disorder. We've talked about psychopathy. We've briefly touched on sociopathy and narcissistic personality disorder. Let's talk about sadism just for a little bit here yeah. because it's something that often doesn't get brought up but mm-hmm. I think is relevant. So sadism, there have been many definitions over the past 100 plus years, but essentially the main definition is that sadistic people derive pleasure from the suffering of other people. Right. Or they get off on controlling others and humiliating them. So do we right. see either one of these in Lewis? Not really, right? Like the fact is he just doesn't care. Like we've said it many times. Right. He doesn't show like he gets off on the murder or the dead people right. or on, when he inflicts harm on um, the closest you could see maybe, but it's not really even when he's filming. What's his name? Uh, the... His employee? No, no. When he's filming uh, Paxton uh, and he's filming him, you see a sense of self-satisfaction well, yeah. by having ruined him. Right. But it's different from the sadistic feeling of, ah, you're in pain. I'm right. enjoying this. So we could see a sadist being attracted to this line of work, right? Sure. Because they, they, would, they would love... Because right. another element of sadism is that you can, vi- you can vicariously mm-hmm. participate in sadism right. by not actually inflicting the harm yourself, but by watching the harm happen to people. Essentially, it's, it's like they just get off. They, they experience pleasure right. when other people experience real pain and real suffering. And, and there's a big difference between instrumental hurting, like you're in my way, mm-hmm. like the way that Lewis harmed Bill Paxton. Right. Paxton was in his way, yeah. and that's what they call instrumental harm because he it, it served a purpose for him. He lacked remorse about it, so he was able to do that. But sadists aren't necessarily doing it for an instrumental reason. Right. They just they just will harm people. That's like the Bateman, yeah. Yeah, because they get off on watching people suffer. So I have before me a measure for sadism. So let's go oh. through that for, for Lewis. So on a one to five point scale, with one being strongly disagree, okay. two being disagree, three being neutral, neutral four being four, agree, yeah. and five being strongly agree, or just say one of those, uh, answer me this. Um, and I, the questionnaire is, is self-report, so I'm going to be reading the self-report questions. I was purposely mean to some people in high school. So that, do we think that Lewis would agree or, or disagree with that? We don't know because we don't know about high school. I enjoy making jokes at the expense of others. 
No, I disagree. Strongly disagree. Yeah. I have purposefully tricked someone and laughed when they looked foolish. Disagree. Yeah. When making fun of someone, it is especially amusing if they realize what I'm doing. Yes. There's no disagree because there's not even an example of that. Yeah. Perhaps I shouldn't have, but I never got tired of mocking certain classmates. No evidence. Yeah. I enjoy physically harming. So that's all in the verbal sadism. Now we're in the direct physical sadism. I enjoy physically hurting people. No, I disagree. I enjoy tormenting people. I disagree. I have the right to push certain people around. I have the right? Yeah, I strongly agree. Well, to push... Yeah, actually, he's pushing her around. Totally. Yeah. I have dominated others using fear. Yeah. Who? He... Is dominating uh, her with, well, like physical fear? Yeah. Oh, I he see. He doesn't physically intimidate her. Well, he did do it to his to his do it to his sidekick. He said he said, "Listen, if you continue this, don't you think I might have to hurt you?" He like says something like he that. He said that. Yeah. Uh, all right. Now we're on to. So we did verbal sadism, physical sadism. Now we're going to vicarious sadism. In video games, I like the realistic blood spurts. We, we There's no that. evidence. Yeah. I love to watch YouTube clips of people fighting. Uh, we don't know. I enjoy watching oh. cage fighting where there is no escape. <laughs> I mean, by the way, like when he is watching his own footage, there's no indication that he's enjoying it because of the gore. He's enjoying it because of the promise of how much he's going to get out of it. Right. And he's not rattled by the trauma of it. But just listen to some of these on, on this. This is, by the way, the comprehensive assessment of sadistic tendencies. I enjoy watching cage fighting or MMA where there is no escape. <laughs> I sometimes I sometimes replay my favorite scenes from gory slasher films. We don't know. I enjoy playing the villain in games and torturing other characters. In professional car racing, it's the accidents that I enjoy most. Now, here's where I have the biggest problem with this test because certainly if someone says I enjoy physically hurting people, definitely you're you're sadistic. If you I mean, who right. enjoys physically hurting other people? Right. That is not... I enjoy tormenting people. You're a sadist. Right. But if you like the realistic blood spurts in video games, that's not necessarily... It could be an indication of sadism, but not necessarily. I mean, maybe you just really love the realism of it or... If you have a certain level... Past a certain level of self-sophistication, you are able to handle more in a simulation. That's hard to get what I just said, but what I mean is imagine the most realistic simulation, like not just on your TV, but it's like fully immersive. It looks real. And the only difference is you have been told or you know that it is a simulation because like you entered it and then turned it on or whatever. But otherwise it looks and feels real, right? So like the hollow deck in Star Trek, right? In that scenario, if I you are playing that scenario and you have to kill someone, for most of us, that's going to be really hard to do. But the more, in, uh, how do I say, the more sophisticated, yeah, the more sophisticated you are in the sense of like fully understanding yourself and being centered and stuff, you actually might be able to do it and still separate it as that's fiction, it's not real. Interesting now, hypothesis. Maybe. And the, the only reason I say that is because, you know, I know that when I was, um, when I was a child, I would watch a uh, scary moment in a movie or a gory moment in a movie and the reaction felt so much more visceral to me right. and then as as an adult um, like I'm able to to right. that, make that distinction easier right well, to me fiction non-fiction and maybe this is what you mean by sophistication but 
to me, it would just be a function of how used to you are to that thing. So if you threw you and I, you and me, into a holodeck on mm-hmm. Star Trek, we would probably have a really hard, even though yeah. someone told us it was a holodeck, we, but if we went into a holodeck 100,000 times, eventually yeah. we could kill people in yeah. the holodeck and be totally fine with it because yeah. we would know it didn't mean and that And that's what I mean. So, so like in the same way, oh, and, and then there's one more delta there is if your personality or, or your mental capacity doesn't let you through experience get more used to it because yeah. you might have that problem. Right. Uh, so in, in that sense, if you're playing Call of Duty right. and you've played it enough, you're enjoying the, the gameplay. You're not enjoying the fact that, oh, I'm killing people for right. real. You know? Right. And if you like watching Cage, I mean, one of the criteria here is I enjoy watching cage fighting where there is no escape. I mean, what? <laughs> like everyone who watches MMA is potentially a sadist? That's ridiculous to me. I sometimes replay my favorite scenes from gory slasher films. I mean, you love slasher films. I love slasher films. And, and that's – so to me, like, yes, it's possible, but the amount of weight they give to these items is – Is I, it equivalent? Like, are yeah. those the – really? Yeah, it's totally equivalent, but it's, it's – <laughs> That is that, – oops, that is pretty bad. At least I think it's equivalent, but all right. So causes. We let's talk about potential causes of psychopathy or any social personality disorder. What do you think is the single most common cited cause of this sort of thing? Of psychopathy? Yeah, there's probably two. Uh, the single most. Uh, well, I I I don't know. I thought it was maybe genetic, but that's one. Oh, it is. Okay, uh, and then the other one might be abuse. That's two. Oh, okay. Right. So often psychopaths have severe abuse histories or neglect histories. However, this detail is difficult to substantiate since we as scientists and diagnosticians usually rely on patients to tell us about their histories, right? right. And since psychopaths lie a lot right. and have reasons <laughs> to potentially manipulate us into feeling sorry for them, they might play up certain abuses and I've certainly seen that happen. However, there's been a there's a pretty large body of evidence showing that when people are abused severely or neglected severely as children, over time they are more likely to develop psychopathy or antisocial personality disorder. In my experience, it it has to involve a certain amount of neglect early in life, according to my anecdotal evidence with clients. From the time we're born until we're age 2 or 3, in, in my experience, that's when people develop their empathy for other people. And if you are neglected, like you grow up in an orphanage, like this one kid I knew grew up in another country and where the orphanages weren't very well staffed and the practices weren't considerate of the attachment of children. And the infants and the, the babies were left alone to cry in their mm. cribs for long periods of time. Because they just didn't have the staff. I mean, today in the States, you'll have someone periodically hold the child. Right. Because research shows that if you don't do that, not only can the child develop emotional problems later on, but their brain development is might suffer. And they might even actually die because of physical oh, neglect. But anyway, in other countries, you know, this, this, they might not have that. And even though upon adoption at the age of three, four, or five, they are raised in a wonderful family, they will have this basic psychopathic personality disorder because they, they were never given that opportunity. You can't insert 
the attachment slash empathy for other human beings once a certain developmental phase has passed. At least that's my opinion, and there's some there's some evidence for that. So so not only abuse, mm-hmm. but also but also emotional attachment neglect is is what I see, and what other people will write about as well. Twin studies suggest a genetic component. So you oh, know, like there's been twin yeah. psychopaths. Or- so you have twins that are raised in different environments, mm-hmm. and one might have a more difficult environment, and one doesn't, and both people have a greater chance of of being psychopathic, but not entirely, right? So it's not entirely genetic by any means. There also seems to be a neuro component. This is also a genetic component in that it seemingly psychopathic people have less reactivity in their autonomic nervous system, So, hmm. which might be an indication of an overall difference in their nervous system, which might lead to psychopathy. I mean, maybe they just don't feel as much as other people do, which leads to the hypothesis that they can't pick up on other people's emotions because they don't feel anything. They, right. they generally don't feel their own emotions, which makes it hard to feel other people's emotions, which makes them seek sensations like you know, taking risks and being impulsive and punching people in the face. And that's why they don't have a lot of fear. And so, you know, if you take someone's nervous system and just dial it down severely, maybe that's what creates any social personality disorder over time. Right. Unknown though. That's weird because you would, yeah, you tend to think of it as like the other way around, like um, hyperactivity or hyper this and that. But from that perspective, it's like they feel less. <laughs> well, yeah. one of the hypotheses regarding hyperactivity, I mean, if you're hyperactive, what do they give you as a medication? Uh, the Ritalin, right? The, What's Ritalin? Do you know what it is? I don't know. It's a stimulant. Oh. It's like caffeine or, co- oh, really? or cocaine. If you're hyperactive, why would a stimulant make you calmer? Oh. Well, because if your nervous system is underactive, then... And people prefer to be at a baseline nerve, nervous system activity. They will become hyperactive and be, and very distractible and want a lot of stimulation <laughs> to bring their nervous system up to the norm. And when you give them a stimulant, it, it artificially raises their nervous system up to the norm. And then they don't uh, need to distract themselves and therefore they're less hyperactive. That's shocking, dude. I, I always assumed it was a calming Right, because according to you know the common ideas about the nervous system, if you're if someone's bouncing off the wall, then their nervous system is overactive. Right. But the hypothesis goes, and there's some evidence of that clearly with the stimulant issue, is that their nervous system is underactive. All right. So, what do you think the prevalence of antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy is in the U.S. population? Oh man. Well, if in prison it was. Uh, f- what is it, 40-some and 30-some, I'd say I would hope that it's lower outside of prison. So I would say <laughs> I would say it'd be, uh, uh, but there's a lot still. So I'd say 25 and, 25 and 15. Wow, really? <laughs> yeah. So you think 15% of U.S. citizens, U.S. people who live in the United States, no, would qualify no, for the psychopathy no, no, when no. Lewis didn't even qualify? No, no, no. Hold on, hold on. You're right, you're right. Let me rethink this. Uh, okay, so now let me think. So 300 million. I think what There's you were like, saying 3 million is like was 25% 1%. of people have tendencies 
at least some tendencies is probably what you're thinking, right? No, I was just trying to lower this. Let me let me go lower because you're right. That that's ridiculous. But okay, I'm gonna say uh, I'm I'm sticking to like 15% antisocials because there's a lot of antisocial people, and I'm gonna say 5% psychopathy. There's about 3% that qualify for antisocial personality disorder, mm-hmm. and slightly less than that that qualify for psychopathy. So there's hardly anyone in the States that qualify for this. Yeah. And that's another misnomer that I think is out there in the ether in terms of our society right now because of all the news media that's talking about this. That The way that they talk about it, it's like, every other person's a psychopath. (laughs) And it's just not true. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. You know, a basic human developmental requirement is that you have empathy for other human beings because in order to negotiate society, which is a a very important thing, regardless of time or era, whether it was now or 100,000 years ago, that's very important. But also coupling with another person and negotiating child rearing and all that, like we have evolved to have a lot of empathy for people. And if you don't, then you are not of the norm and would likely get selected out of the gene pool back in the day. The, The reason I went so high though is because, you know, so many people in this country vote what I would call unempathetically. You know, like they, they, like about half the country is easily at any given time likely to vote. No, don't do stem cells research or don't allow gay marriage or don't allow these kind of empath, like things that kind of, well, if you're empathetic, you might think, oh, well, that's. Well, what you're talking about is a value judgment. Yeah. And not necessarily what clinically we would call yeah, yeah. empathy. No, and I get that. But but it's kind of like, I think it's because within their family circle of friends and stuff, they might be empathetic, but they might Absolutely. not be empathetic to all humanity. Like I right. drive, I drive my Hummer whether you want me to or not. Well, according to, to that sentiment, you and I are extremely unempathetic because we both use fossil fuels That's and true. electricity. That's true. And we are probably the last people on the planet that will suffer from global warming. It will be people in southern latitudes and people who live closer to the coast and people who, even though we live in Seattle. We live in Seattle. <laughs> but, but we have the money to move up into the mountains. That's true. And so, you know, I'd be careful about that that criteria. So so the people who qualify for the diagnosis are pre- pretty rare. Uh, and, and these people are pretty rare, which is a nice thing. But when you have three, two, three percent of 300 million people, you know, what is that? You're talking about 6 million, 10 million people or something. That's a lot of people. Yep. <laughs> 10 million people walking around without any remorse and lack of empathy. 10 million, that's a lot of people. Yeah. So... It depends on how you look at it. All right. So let's get into the psychoanalytic perspective just to wrap it up here. All right. Since I am a psychodynamic therapist, among other theories that I adhere to, I thought I might provide the psychodynamic or psychoanalytic perspective. Basically, you would say that Lewis probably had a basic had a basic failure in human attachment in his early life. That's the thought about antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy, even though he didn't qualify psychopathy completely according to what we know right. <laughs> he definitely had what we would call a lack of empathy and these sorts of things yeah. and so the idea is is that people exhibiting this had early in their life a failure of human attachment like i was talking about with right in like the, in the orphanage yeah um and also because of this they rely on what we call very primitive defenses defense mechanisms so some defense mechanisms that they might employ to defend against the pain that they experience in in their psyche are f- the following they might use what we call omnipotent control do you know very many defense mechanisms off the top of your head 
has this permeated the culture? No. Uh, I mean, uh, well, other than what's the the um, defense what, defense mechanisms like the um, uh, project like projection projection. That's one. Yeah. That's and that's, uh, that's one. You know, denial. Denial. That's another one. Oh, okay. Okay. Good. Uh, There's many more. There's like thirty more. But so wow. so omnipotent control is one. So infants believe that they have omnipotence. That they can control everything. Right. That the world revolves around them. Right. That when they want something, they can get it. And they actually even have magical thinking that they can actually affect the world, right? They don't understand that they're a very small part of a very large universe. So infants believe they have omnipotent control. They can control everything. And when we are adults, when when we have psychic problems, you know, when in our psyche we have pain and difficulty, we might defend against it by employing this defense by believing that we have omnipotent control and acting out accordingly. So because infants, when they're abused and neglected, they learn that they can't depend on other people. Therefore, they need a fantasy that they can impose their will on the world and the world will bend to their will in order to cope, right? When, when you're an infant, you have no control, very little control of your life. Mm-hmm. And the world is a big, scary place. And the way that we typically deal with this is by having loving attachments with our caregivers. They will give to us. They'll protect us. They'll be there for us when we're upset. They will help us understand our emotions. If you don't have that, then you as an individual will learn, I can't depend on other people. And I certainly can't depend on myself because I'm completely inept at, at dealing with the world. Well, how about I just start believing that I have total control over the world? Right. That's, that's one way that people will deal with it. And it's a, an extreme coping mechanism or defense mechanism for an extreme reality for the individual. So they might use omnipotent control. And did Lewis exhibit this? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Because, like, it, there, there was that sense of, like, hey, I can, like, I'm going to tell you what, what I want, and you're going to do it, and you're going to give it to me, period. Right. He, in negotiations, was ruthless. Yeah. Like, his first employee, he made him an intern for a long <laughs> yeah. time and this sort of thing. Yeah. So, and particularly when he was manipulating Rene Russo and having sex with him, yeah. you know, he, he just believed he could get what he wanted out of that. Another uh, defense that is often used uh, by people with any social personality disorder or psychopathy is projective identification, which we've talked about before. So... Basically, according to the idea here, is that, you know, in, in projective identification, we will defend a, against certain issues of pain in our psyche. And one of the things that is difficult for psychopaths is their own emotionality. Again, because they were abused and neglected as children, they haven't learned how to modulate their emotions. They don't know how to cope with them. And so the, their emotions can be overwhelming. And one of the ways that they expel the emotion from them, from their psyche, is to place it in another person. So they will manipulate someone else into feeling their emotions. And the fantasy is that they're they're no longer feeling those emotions. And this is all a psychodynamic, psychoanalytic perspective. And it sounds wacky, but I've seen it, and it doesn't make any logical sense. But I've seen it happen time and time again. The more disturbed someone is emotionally, the more likely they're going to make other people around them feel the way they feel on the inside. When someone 
endures a lot of abuse and neglect and feels like they can't trust other people, they tend to make other people feel abused and neglected. So it's not only a way of dumping your emotions into other people and having the fantasy that you no longer have them when you actually do, but it's also a way of communicating your feelings. So, so would that be something like, uh, you know, you have a friend and you're the person with this, with these feelings. The example in this case is you don't actually care so much for this person and you've been neglect, neglectful, neglectful. And, but then the next time you see him, you're like, hey, you've been avoiding me. You've been ignoring me. You've been neglecting me. Yes. And or you would neglect the other person, not because you're trying to dump neglectfulness into them, but because you on the inside feel neglected because mm-hmm. that's more fundamental to our to our, you know, psyche than it is to be neglectful of people. Uh And so you're going to make other, because you as a child felt neglected and, and abused, you are going to pull people into your life and then you're going to systematically make them feel extremely neglected. I see. And this is projective identification. You're projecting. Mm -hmm. Okay. Another one is acting out which is a, a common phrase that people use. So there's lots of internal motivation toward action when they are prompted. You know, the people, psychopaths have, they take action. They don't second guess things. They're impulsive. They're aggressive. Right. They, they take what they want. There's, there's not a lot of opposing force to acting out. There's not a superego saying, don't do that. And so when they feel powerless or worthless, they're likely to, def- to defend against this psychic pain by acting out, by lashing out, by affirming their power and worth as a distraction to the fact that they actually feel really powerless and worthless themselves. Ah. So we see this probably in both Lewis and Bateman, right? Yep. Uh, two more. One, uh, the another defense mechanism often employed by psychopaths is dissociative processes. So they often will dissociate their responsibility, their past behavior, and any indications of personal flaws because it creates too much pain. So when psychopaths have evidence that they have a weakness, they defend against it by dissociating any memory or experience that they had that presents evidence in that direction. They also will dissociate their own responsibility. Like when you're bringing up, maybe we talk to Lewis and he says, well, my my employee knew what he was getting into. Well, that's a dissociative process because according to what we saw in the film, the employee would not have been dead (laughs) if Lewis had just said, the guy's alive and has a gun. Right. He, he completely manipulated the situation for his employee to die. And so in that way, the individual will dissociate certain, ish, certain realities to uphold a certain idea of themselves. Right. And it's unclear in this one whether or not internally he's all like, I know what's up, but I'm going to lie. Um, there's that line in American Psycho where he's like, but inside doesn't matter. And in some ways, it's whether it matters or not, it's impossible to know what's really inside, right. especially in the movie. Uh, but Bateman, Bateman does, well, I don't know if it's dissociation, but he basically, he, he definitely has a problem with perceiving the actual reality of things. And I don't know if that's more psychosis or right. I mean, dissociation. There's, or, there's a fair amount of evidence that at least some, if not all, of the killings were hallucinated. Yeah. 
Uh, and the final defense mechanism often employed by psychopaths is denial, as you mentioned. A denial of the fact that they're harming other people. A denial of personal responsibility. And this is something that isn't we don't see it in Lewis or we don't know if he's in denial of his personal responsibility. Right. So that, but what you'll see is you'll talk to psychopaths and you'll say, you know, like the example you brought up, you say, well, you know, you did this thing and, and then they'll just, it's, and it's not like the defense mechanism is not an active conscious process. It's not something like I'm going to deny that responsibility because I don't like it. But on the inside, I basically know I'm responsible for that. The defense mechanism denial is such that you consciously totally are in denial of it. You don't even believe that you did something wrong. Right. Like if we use the example of Lewis, he would have said, no, I, I, I actually didn't, I never saw the, the gun. Yeah. I, he looked dead to me. Yeah. Or it could have been me, man. Yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't know what was going to happen. And it's not a lie. They actually believe it to be true. Right. Because in order to, ex if they're going, if they don't go into denial, then they have to accept that they did something wrong. And if they believe that they're flawless, then those two thoughts don't mesh, mesh up well. I'm flawless, I'm perfect, and yet I did this thing that society thinks is bad. So how can I deal with that conflict? Well, I'll just go into denial about one side of it to uphold my sense of self-worth and perfectness. Right. By the way, he didn't seem to be in denial. He seemed to be more the other one, which was the, uh, the justification or whatever. You know, the, like the, yeah. the denial for him, um, it would have been maybe more evidenced if he had been like if there had been scenes where he was a little conflicted about things or or but it, 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 the whole time he seems completely in control right. so the most i could conclude would might be that he's convinced himself that oh no no it's his line of work you know that's what happens yeah it's not my it's not my responsibility right. but not as in like no i didn't even i didn't even Right. I would have. So his, his value system is <laughs> yeah. such that his actions don't challenge his values. Yeah. Uh, like I could see him saying, well, everybody needs to do this. And if someone did this to me, well, then that's their right because yeah. that's what Oh, right. Do. Like almost to that extreme. Like, yeah, of course I put him in, in front of the, if there were no really legal repercussions, right. of course I put him in front of the shotgun. He should have done the same to me. Right. <laughs> right. Like a different way to do this if you wanted to stay in denial would have been to confront Bill Paxton in his house or something and bring a gun. Yeah. But not but in your head you're like right. I'm not, not going to shoot him. And then you get into a physical altercation, you pull out the gun, you shoot him, and then in your mind you can walk away and say, "Well, it was self-defense." Right. Now everyone looking at that says it's ridiculous you went over to his house with a gun. Yeah. But you as an individual might be able to walk away saying mm, it was right. self-defense. So I brought up the hypothesis of the cause regarding abuse and neglect and, and genetics, which is a strong uh, hypothesis given the data. But there's also a different psychodynamic explanation for this uh, personality disorder in that you can have parents that are not neglectful or abusive, but they will uphold or reinforce a child's narcissism and omnipotent control. So when a child's three years old or two years old or something, there are occasion parents who will allow their children to grow up thinking that they have total control over their world and that they're perfect mm -hmm. and that they're entitled and that they can do no wrong. And when they do something antisocial to someone else, the parents don't react badly. Some uh, A common tip of the iceberg behavior that you might see with families like this is when the you know little Johnny gets in trouble at school and the parents 
go to the school and yell at the teacher. Now, this doesn't mean that right. when you yell at teachers, you're, you're going to raise a, a, a psychopathic <laughs> child. But you can imagine that over time, if you have a family like this with a, a sickness, I'm going to call it that, then the child could definitely grow up with psychopathy, right? Right. Well, uh, there was those cases. Well, I'm sure there's tons of them. There was one not too long ago where, remember some, some rich kid did something really bad, like he murdered someone or he ran over someone with his car. And and he was like, I think he was an 18-year-old or, or he wasn't very old, but he was rich, you know. And he ran someone over with a car. I think that's what I was. Oh, I think he was driving drunk and killed someone. Oh, yeah, this was the case of the... Affluenza. Affluenza. Yeah. The lawyer was actually trying to use something like this, which is, listen, he was malconditioned to believe that he can't, you know, can't do wrong or whatever it is. And it, it um, but yeah, that, that whole, it's the Eric Cartman syndrome, basically. <laughs> right. As a legal defense, we could say <laughs> that's a problem, but as a potential clinical diagnostic element, I, I've definitely seen it. Another possibility that I thought of earlier today was that if a young child is particularly difficult, you know, some kids are easier than others. It, it, and if a child is particularly difficult to parent, like very hyper or a little uh, absent-minded or something, the parents or caregivers might find it difficult to bond with them because they're colicky or some other issue. And if the parents are stressed out or they don't understand the child's behavior, which you could totally imagine since there's, there's not a lot of support for parents, it's believed that this can lead to psychopathy as well because the distance that's created by that. So you have, you have perfectly well-meaning parents that, that have the average amount of parenting ability and you match that up with just a, a strangely difficult child or infant that can create bonding issues and attachment issues mm. that can feel like neglect and abuse to the child, even I though see. it's not actually uh, what we would call looking at it, abuse and neglect. And that can lead to psychopathy. Okay. Wow. So it's to me, that would be those people that when you talk to them that are psychopathic and you, and you say, well, what about your childhood? And they say, oh, my, my family's great. And this might be one of those. It might either be this reason or that their parents gave them too much. They essentially spoiled them in terms of giving, you know, reinforcing their entitlement. But if you raise a child in the Spartan way, like basically kind of in a cage with raw meat to eat and eventually you put them in front of wolves and if the ones that live, live. And that's fine, right? That doesn't develop psychopaths. Totally. That develops a wolf man, (laughs) but uh, not a psychopath. All right. Let's talk about treatment. Um, Many think it's pointless to treat people like this. Many think it's pointless to treat psychopaths. Basically, many clinicians believe that antisocial personality disorder people and people that uh, qualify for the psychopathic diagnosis, that they can't change, that they just need to be managed, that you can't change a fundamental personality. And there's some evidence of that. They also believe that you can't treat them because they will manipulate the therapist. They're, they lie a lot. They like to manipulate. They like right. to get things from other people. And in order to participate meaningfully and, and healthfully in therapy, you have to be honest to some extent. You have to not be trying to actively manipulate your therapist constantly. So so that's what uh, many people think. And, and also, as a result, many clinicians avoid people like this. 
They can also be quite scary and create a lot of what we call countertransference. A lot of clinicians will be frightened by people like this because, you know, imagine someone's in prison for having murdered someone or raped somebody or something. Right. As a clinician, it'd be hard to talk to them because you would be – it's it's inherently f- uh, fear-inducing to talk to someone like this because you think, are they going to are they gonna do that to me? Because so, they start like, have the lambs stopped crying? You exactly. Know, that kind of thing. Um, but there's some evidence that even though a lot of clinicians say it's worthless and they avoid them, there's some evidence that if a psychopathic individual experiences a long-term healthy attachment, say with a therapist, they might be less likely to act out and more likely to internalize a, a to internalize a proper superego. I mean, essentially the idea is, is that they were neglected as children. They were abused as children. If a, a proper relationship happens over long, a long enough time, the individual might actually internalize something that they were not given as children and might be able to, at the end of that treatment period, have a lot less psychopathic tendencies and antisocial tendencies. What do you think about that? Is, is there evidence? Have there been cases like that? Yeah, certainly. Like, wasn't Bund- Bundy was married to a very caring person? Right. So that didn't cure him. No. And I don't specialize in treating psychopaths, so I can't really talk about it from personal experience. But I have treated people with other personality disorders that are close to antisocial. And in my experience, you can actually help people. But it takes a long, long time. And the therapist has to be very good at what they do. You can't take a case like this in a simple manner. So the therapist must provide a consistent object for the for the patient. They have to the therapist has to be very consistent, which is hard mm-hmm. when someone is potentially trying to manipulate you all the time. Right. You have to resist giving in to the projective identification that will likely compel the therapist to become rejecting, punitive, or even exploitatable. You know, the the patient might be trying to exploit you as a therapist. You have to resist that. And these guys are good. They're good at what they do. And they're not easily detected. And so you have to be you have to be very uh, cognizant of what's happening in the relationship. And you also have to be sure not to reject them because that's what they experienced as children and will recreate with you as a therapist. And so they might do a lot of things that will compel you to reject them. And you have to resist that and, again, create a containment for them and to be have a lot of positive regard for them because that's important for the attachment to, to be internalized. The therapist also needs to confront the patient's denial on their antisocial behavior, which is difficult to do when they don't have any remorse or they're in denial or they don't like to take responsibility. You, you, have, to, uh, you have to strongly get to a place where your relationship can handle this sort of thing, if that's ever possible, and talk rather frankly about what they have done or what they plan to do that's antisocial and really talk about how it is harmful to other people and not right. So in other words, you know, you might get to a point in a relationship with someone with antisocial personality disorder to the point where the patient just takes the therapist's word for it that it's not right, even though they don't feel it in their heart that it's mm-hmm. not right because they don't have empathy, they get to a point where they listen to the therapist enough because they believe the therapist cares about them and wants what's right. best for them. And they adopt someone else's morality, essentially. 
The therapist needs to help the patient understand their emotions because this is another element that is common among psychopaths. They don't have a lot of understanding regarding their emotions, again, primarily because they were neglected emotionally as children. The therapist also needs to have realistic expectations because a lot of therapists, particularly when they're starting out, believe that they can cure everybody of everything. (laughs) And it's not realistic to expect that a psychopath even after a couple years of therapy, is not going to at least have some significant, if not their full, if not worse, psychopathic tendencies. So therapists need to have realistic expectations so they don't fall apart and and want to kill themselves, (laughs) which honestly happens sometimes. (laughs) Okay, so so just some final words uh, about this. So one nice thing that we can bank on is as psychopaths grow older, they tend to mellow out, as we all do. So you'll find that psychopathic people, when they're you know, 40, 50, 60 years old, will tend to be a lot less antisocial than when they were 20. So for a lot of psychopaths, sometimes you just have to wait until they're older, sometimes in prison. So what's the final word, Berto? Actually, on that, it is interesting because at the end of the movie, Lewis, you see Lewis guiding his business on a bigger level. You know, he's got multi- two vans and he's got new employees. and They're interns, by they're the way. Inter- and then you get this sense that this guy could end up being one of these successful millionaires next door. And that in, in you know, when he's older, you're like, you don't realize what a horrible person this was and potentially still is, but he's running around, but, but now he probably doesn't need to do horrible things because he's like making too much money anyways. He probably still does it every now and then just out of convenience, but, but you don't even know. And, and, and it's kind of frightening to think how many ruthless entrepreneurs might be borderline like that out there. And, but then by the time they're successful, they're the ones running these big corporations. Well, maybe that's all we need to do is give every psychopath a corporation so they can feel grandiose about themselves and don't have to harm other people in a way that we don't want them to. They can harm us through their capitalist ways. Right. Which are bad enough. Right. So the final word is, is that we, you and I think that Lewis is a psychopath, but he doesn't fit the strict definition according to the PCL, which is just one definition of a psychopath. He does meet the criteria for antisocial personality disorder. He doesn't meet the criteria for sadism or sadistic personality disorder. Another thing I'll say is that it's a good movie. It's very entertaining. We didn't talk about that. I mean, a lot of people liked it, but I I thought it was really good. Yeah, very well done. Great acting. Yeah, I mean, it's it's entertaining. It it keeps moving pretty quick. There's actually a really good chase scene at the end. (laughs) Yeah. That I, I afterwards I thought, wow, they have they had a, a bigger budget than I thought for this movie because chase scenes are expensive and <laughs> and it does yeah you, it, it's almost like it's easy to like dismiss that in it because it's so part of the plot in that moment. It's not a lot of times chase scenes are so gratuitous, right? So it can't you can't help but think of like there's the chase scene. Right. This was so integral in the plot that you can't you don't even think of it as like that's the chase scene, right? But you're right. It was quite elaborate. Yeah. The older I get, the more I realize that I'm pretty sure it's a screenwriter trope to have some kind of chase scene or high intensity situation at the end of a movie just as a climax. Sure. Like the, the time when I realized that this was a trope was in the movie Sideways. Do you remember the movie yeah. Sideways? Like that movie's about wine yeah. and relationships and 
depression and but was there in, a chase? Well, in the end, he breaks into a guy's house to get something. I, I think he's like getting the guy's wallet or something. He oh, I remember. No, no, the, and, and then the guy like he's sleeping with the he's sleeping with the girl, and he w- goes back to try to get the he leaves his wallet there, something like that. And so the whole movie, he's this total schlub and he's always complaining and he's depressive and then at the very end we have this pretty high tense scene where he could be killed or or hurt and i just thought even a movie like sideways you have to have (laughs) some kind of action scene even in star wars you end up having one (laughs) also i'll say that this movie is a good look at the media i mean i don't know if i'm sure this is a cartoonish look at the way the media behaves, but it definitely reflects some of the elements in the media, on the internet, on the TV. The way that if it bleeds, it leads. You got to get viewers. It doesn't matter if it's helpful to people or not. Well, it's got that scent of the the stuff when princes die, remember, got chased into the tunnel and all that. It has that sense of disgusting... The, the news trumps everything. Right. Even your life. I mean, the thing is, is you can be disgusted with the photographer, but you're probably going to look at the photos. It, it, it's the same thing with the, when they hack into celebrities' accounts and get their naked pictures and stuff. Right. How many people looked at those photos, but if you asked them, you would say, what if someone stole... You, your friend's naked photos right and said ha ha i stole janice's photos out of her locker let's look at them you'd say like fuck you like put those back you idiot right you, but, you'd say like definitely let's look at them but fuck you <laughs> no you know you would you would very likely say that's wrong i'm right. not going to look at janice's naked body without her permission that's basically raping her that's not right and yet when it comes to celebrity and when it comes to princess die i mean if your mom fell down and like was bleeding out and your brother just took a bunch of photos of it and he said look at mom you'd be you would say no that's, that's terrible, terrible. <laughs> but when it's princess die she's a celebrity and so so even though we could look at people and say that's reprehensible we'll still look as a society at these right. photos and so this movie definitely portrays that pretty well i mean you 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 walk out having a pretty cynical view of the news, which I already had anyway. Yeah. Um, the other thing I want to say, the, the last thing I want to say, is that often when I talk about psychopathy or any social personality disorder or a sadistic personality disorder, people will walk away feeling very scared of the world. <laughs> there are people like this out there, 10 million people like this out there. And I just want to say, again, very few people qualify for psychopathy in any social personality disorder. Something like 2 3%, which is still a, a good amount of people, but very few. And of those people, very few of them will actually harm you directly. And if they do harm you, they'll do so in an emotional way, and you'll detect it, and you'll move very far away from that person. Right. These sorts of people become isolated because of that. So- And of the people who qualify for the psychopathic personality disorder diagnosis, very few of them will actually kill someone. Right. There's overlap, and they're more likely to kill someone, but most people in society are extremely unlikely to murder someone. Murders are very rare. And so I just want to say that although it happens, you're much more likely to get run over by a bus or get in a car wreck on the freeway than you are. By a psycho. 
<laughs> and, or, or to get run over by a drunk driver right. or to be drunk driving yourself and crash than you ever are to be murdered by a psychopath. Right. So if you want to save your life and feel safe about yourself, try to avoid drunk driving, try to be a defensive driver, try to avoid driving during particular times. These, these sorts of things. Healthy will, diet, exercise. All those things are much more likely to conserve your life. Than, Don't juggle uh, chainsaws as often. Yeah. Much more likely to conserve your life than watching out for psychopaths. All right. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us and take care of yourself. (laughs) 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 And you just insert it. (laughs) 